You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 550. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 29th of December, 2022. Today's episode, we're going to talk about runway excursions, the Southwest Airlines meltdown, and the final report on the Ethiopian 737 MAX crash. So, get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 550 is ready for pushback. Hello and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia. And joining me today from his studio... In Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire. Professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways... It's Captain Nick. Well, hi there, Jeff. Uh, thank you very much for that lovely intro from Old Father Time. And I'll be handing over to the new Father Time in just a few days. Very good. Welcome. And also joining us from his home studio in the air capital, low and slow pilot, old airplane enthusiast, and engineer in the aerospace and defense industry. It's Nick Camacho. Hey, Jeff. Glad to uh, be able to join you here at the end of the year. Can't wait to get caught up with you. And also, from a place to stand, a place to grow. From Ontario, Canada, Toronto, that is. Retired financier and aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our producer, it's Liz Piper. Hi, everybody. Good to see you, Liz. Thanks, Jeff. Now, go to your little place. I'm okay, start talking in my ear. You, you guys behave now. Okay. We'll try. No. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about some aviation news, shall we? Stand by for news. Thank you, Paul Harvey. Uh, the first item in our news segment today is from the Aviation Herald. And uh, let's see, it is a Rim Bun Air de Havilland <laughs> DHC-6 300 Twin Otter. Yes, Rim, Rim Bun. I'm not making this up. Uh, registration, <laughs> Papa Kilo Oscar Tango Yankee, performing a positioning flight from Tamika to Moanamani. Uh, That's not Topeka. Not No, not Topeka. Tamika. 
Moana Mani, uh, Indonesia, with three crew, landed on Moana Mani's runway three, but veered off the right edge of the runway, contacted the airport perimeter fence with its right-hand wing, and became disabled with the right main gear caught in a ditch. Local police reported the aircraft landed in strong wind. Isn't it always the case? Strong winds, wind shear, crosswinds, all that kind of stuff. Well, uh, that's apparently many of, a, of the causes of these incidents. Apparently but so, When you yes. look at them a bit closer, you do wonder. Yeah. I'm sure that in some of these incidents, the strong winds did have something to do with it. Uh, in this case, the nose tires burst on landing. The aircraft went off the runway and its right main uh, gear went into a ditch. There were no injuries as the right-hand wing got entangled with the airport perimeter fence. Parts of the fence had to be taken down as well to be able to move the aircraft. The aircraft had to, uh, been chartered to take troops from Moana Mani to Tamika. And uh, I don't know. I haven't been paying attention. Have you been showing some of those images, uh, have, Liz? Okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah, we have two there. Um, if you're not watching the video, you can follow along in the show notes. And yeah, so um, that's all we have there. And we don't have any information. You know, Simon usually puts some of the uh, data from the METARs and that kind of thing. Uh, but maybe they don't even have that kind of information for this little airfield in Indonesia. But um, yeah, it's quite, po you know, I see the, the in the picture here, looks like some pretty dark gray clouds. Yeah in the background. So Lowering over the mountain. I could see why they might have some strong gusty winds, perhaps. Yeah, might well be uh, the case. Uh, who knows? Uh, it looks like that engine cowling looks very blackened, doesn't it? Yeah. I wonder if there was a bit of post-fire there or something. Hmm. Yeah, good point. It does Charred. Look, although that is the exhaust um, just forward of that area, so maybe they just haven't been washing the airplane very often, <laughs> yeah, and that's just a buildup of soot. What do you think, uh, Nick Camacho, you, our mechanic in residence? Uh, yeah, it looks a little dark to me. I mean, you know, that's a similar style of engine setup and cowling setup as like a King Air would have, and I don't, uh, I don't recall seeing it that dark. You see some discoloration, but not like the sooty appearance. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm not sure. Uh, one thing I did notice is the picture. You know, the picture of the runway, uh, the runway is not very big. No. Uh, and then the other thing that I was thinking about is um, bursting the nose tires on landing. Um, that just seemed a little bit unusual to me because uh, obviously they're oftentimes smaller tires, right? But they also generally see a lot less stress just because they're not touching down at nearly as high of a speed and generally not touching down in as much of with as much side load because the mains are you know touching first and kind of straightening the airplane out so um i just thought it was kind of interesting that they burst the nose tires so mm -hmm. maybe there's a some sort of um i'm trying to remember was it the the tuinata that comes down a fairly nose down mm -hmm. attitude anyway in, in its That's final true. approach and That's true. Uh, landing nose wheel first is is a definite you know, there's something to be uh, aware of in this time. Yeah, it's too bad Steph isn't here. She could tell us a, a lot about the uh, the Twin Otter since she's checked out in that aircraft. But I would imagine also if you have some strong winds, you're probably carrying a little bit of extra speed. And uh, so, you know, you're going faster. That means you're even more 
probably nose down in this kind of airplane. So you have to yep. be careful about what you're doing when you get close to touchdown. Yeah. So, well, See a little we bit of speculation. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll find out uh, more if they give us an update on the uh, Aviation Herald. Okay. I want so. that gaps got that guy's baseball hat. He's got more gold braid in that baseball hat than I've ever seen. Look at that. I Ooh, really that want nice. that hat. Super yeah. Captain. That's what I think I should have. Yeah. Like just the whole thing covered in gold braid. Thingy. <laughs> Yeah. So many stripes you can't count. Yeah, I exactly. Uh, I should have, you know, four stripes. That's all. No, come on. <laughs> yeah, I just want to be golden armbands. Yeah, uh, I should have a gold hat. Actually, when I think about it. Yeah, I, I think I'd be a good <laughs> retirement present. <laughs> I think so. Okay. Oh no. I hope that doesn't make somebody want to go out and actually make a gold <laughs> hat for me. <laughs> Remember, I'm downsizing. Please don't give me anything. Anyway, I'm, I'm sure most of you have heard by now that uh, over the uh, last week or so here in the United States, we had a those mean Canadians threw down some of their extremely cold air uh, at the U- United States of America and uh, caused temperatures just to plummet. I mean, just crazy, crazy cold. You were cold in Atlanta. And yeah, the Canadians air, air were. Uh, so, so apparently I misblamed the Canadians, one of our uh, live audience members, uh, Tom, right, uh, said that yep. uh, mm-hmm. the uh, air actually came from the Ruskies. And uh, so I think in an effort to blame the Canadians, uh, they did that. Right. But they, they didn't say anything, though. They didn't false fess up. Yeah, <laughs> false flag. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, because of the really, really cold weather here in the U.S., um, it caused a lot of issues for a lot of the airlines here in our country. And uh, one of them one was, at issue. yeah, one, one did excel at uh, the bad uh, issues going on, and that was the airline Southwest. Um, federal scrutiny is growing. The chief executive is apologizing to customers. And as the meltdown at Southwest Airlines, one of the worst that industry observers have seen in decades, entered yet another day on Wednesday, irate customers remained stranded, separated from their families and some still carrying Christmas Christmas gifts they planned to deliver days ago. In fact, we have somebody in our live chat room as we're recording here on Thursday, December 29, uh, Tim Van Ram. Uh, he kind of gave up. Uh, he has he is driving right now as we record the show from what do you say, Phoenix Texas, to Texas. Texas? Oh wow, yeah, Texas to uh, Northern California. Um, I hope you're enjoying the uh, the scenery, Tim. Anywho, um, there was no relief early Wednesday, which was yesterday. Southwest had canceled more than 2,500 flights or 62% of its planned flights for the day, according to FlightAware, a flight tracking service. The company has said it could be days until the knots are untangled and normal service resumes. <laughs> and, oh, I Hall Boxes says in our live audience story has it the trouble originated with a new baggage worker, a former lawyer <laughs> who kept on losing cases. Did we have to read that list? Oh, oh Lord. <laughs> I'm really, I can cut that out in uh, post, I think. Uh, you can tell it's just being Christmas. All these Christmas cracker jokes are coming out. <laughs> yes. I want everyone who is dealing with the problems we've been facing, whether you haven't this been able to CEO. get to where you need to go, or you're one of our heroic employees caught up in a massive effort to stabilize the airline, uh, to know is that we're doing everything we can to return to a normal operation. 
and please also hear that I'm truly sorry. Here's why this giant puzzle is taking us several days to solve. Southwest is the largest carrier in the country, not only because of our value and our values, but because we build our flight schedule around communities, not hubs. So we're the largest airline in 23 of the top 25 travel markets in the U.S. Cities where large numbers of scheduled flights simultaneously froze as record bitter cold brought challenges for all airlines. You know, our network is highly complex and the operation of the airline counts on all the pieces, especially aircraft and crews, remaining in motion to where they're planned to go. With our large fleet of airplanes and, and flight crews out of position in dozens of locations, and after days of trying to operate as much of our full schedule across the busy holiday weekend, we reached a decision point to significantly reduce our flying to catch up. We're focused on safely getting all of the pieces back into position uh, to end this rolling struggle. You know, I have nothing but pride and respect for the efforts of the people of Southwest who are showing up in every way. The tools we use to recover from disruption serve as well 99% of the time but clearly we need to double down on our already existing plans to upgrade systems for these extreme circumstances so that we never again face what's happening uh, right now. I'm apologizing to them daily and they'll be hearing more about our specific plans to ensure the challenges that they faced the past few days will not be part of our future. I reached out to Secretary Buttigieg earlier today to continue the discussions we've been having with the DOT through the holidays. Uh, sharing all the things that we're doing to make things right for our customers. We always take care of our customers, and we will lean in and go above and beyond as they would expect us to. Teams are working on all of that, processing refunds, proactively reaching out and taking care of customers who are dealing with costly detours and reroutes. It's just a few examples. Our plan for the next few days is to fly a reduced schedule and reposition our people and planes and we're making headway and we're optimistic to be back on track before next week. We have some real work to do in making this right. For now, I want you to know that we're committed to that. All right. That was Southwest Airlines CEO. Uh, let's see, what's his name? Um, Jordan. Yes. Um, and I'm trying to find the link that Liz just sent to me. She said there's some I just texted it to you. breaking news. Southwest is going to resume normal flight operations on Friday. Is the okay, thank you. Flight, uh, they said that they should be resuming normal flight operations on Friday, which is tomorrow. Um, now, he mentioned, uh, talk, he mentioned our um, transportation secretary, Pete Buttigieg, um, and that he, it was an unacceptable situation that would demand a closer look at Southwest's scheduling system. We all understand that you can't control the weather, he said, adding that this has clearly crossed the line from what is an uncontrollable weather situation to something that is the airline's direct responsibility. Senator Maria Cantwell, chair of the Senate Commerce Committee, said in a statement on Tuesday that the, co the committee would be investigating the causes of the meltdown and that the problems at Southwest Airlines over the last several days go beyond weather. Many airlines fail to adequately communicate with consumers during flight cancellations, she said. Customers deserve strong protections, including an updated consumer refund rule. And yeah, Bob Jordan, the CEO, uh, issued the uh, apologies 
um, several times, by the way. That was just the video one that we just uh, played. Um, he said, our plan for the next few days is to fly a reduced schedule, reposition our people and planes. We're making headway, and we're optimistic to be back on track before next week. The issues stem from the carrier's unique point-to-point model in which planes tend to fly from destination to destination without returning to one or two main hubs. Most airlines follow a hub-and-smoke uh, hub and smoke, hub and smoke model in which planes typically return to a hub airport after flying out to other cities. Uh, when bad weather hits, hub-and-spoke airlines can shut down specific routes and have plans in place to restart operations when the sky is clear. But bad weather can scramble multiple flights and routes in a point-to-point model, leaving Southwest staff out of position to resume normal operations. It leaves passengers like, oh, I don't want to talk about her, uh, people having problems with uh, travel. There's a obviously. live update from Tim Van Ram. All right. Tim Van Ram has a live update. He says... Two more hours to Oakland Airport, where his car is. Okay, so he's made 90% or more of his trek from Texas back home. So, Tim. What is he, walking to get to his car? No, it's just this country of ours here, Nick, is pretty big. (laughs) But how does he get into his car? Uh, I think he rented a car, I would imagine. I'm guessing. Oh, he's using a car to get to his car. Yes. Why didn't he take his car in the first place? I don't know. Why didn't he just fly Southwest Airlines to? Oh, never mind. <laughs> yeah. Never mind. Good luck, Tim. Yeah. Good luck. Um, yeah. So interestingly, I you know I knew that some airlines were having issues, including my own, but not huge issues. We did have some cancellations and that kind of thing. But when we left Tulsa, Oklahoma, on mm, Tuesday morning, the second day of my trip. Uh, we had a jump seater uh, from Southwest Airlines, and he and he said, uh, you know, we were talking about this and that, and you know, he found out that I did a podcast. He goes, well, don't don't be too too hard on us. <laughs> I said, well, why? What's going on? I, at that point, I really didn't know how bad it was going for Southwest Airlines, and he said that he had been at uh, in Tulsa for two nights, and he was supposed to be home for Christmas, and uh, this was uh, the twenty seventh. That we were uh, you know, that we were taking him back to Atlanta, and uh, he said he was going to take a day off to recover, and then he was going to go back out again on the following day, which was yesterday, to uh, to try to help out today. with this whole. Or is it today? Was today it yeah. Thursday? Well, no, Tuesday it was Tuesday. I think when we uh, when he was. Oh, he's going to take back. Tuesday off. Okay. Yeah, he's going to take Wednesday off and uh, then go back out. Yeah, you're right. Today. today. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Um, anyway, so, uh, and we're going to find out that, uh, not only was Tim Van Ram, but probably many of those who are listening to our show right now have been negatively affected by this whole debacle, uh, including, um, uh, well, Vernon Tryon in our feedback segment, we'll hear a little bit, uh, about, uh, how it's affected him. So, um, yeah, I can see how, uh, a hub and spoke kind of airline operation would be a little bit more resilient to, you know, bad weather and, you know, the situation that we have gone through in the last week and how an airline structured like Southwest could possibly be much more vulnerable to uh, some some negative uh, uh, issues and ramifications. What say you, Captain Nick? Well, I, I'm not familiar really with how a point-to-point airline operates because, you know, our, our outfit was relatively small. Mm-hmm. Um, I can explain it to you real fast if you want. They yeah, take off from one point. 
fly. <laughs> yeah. But don't all airplanes do that? <laughs> <laughs> wow. You know, aren't we glad that we have Nick Camacho with us to explain the fire Absolutely. points and details of these systems? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm assuming that some of the points they go to are not necessarily your big international airports. They're, mm. they're you know, uh, little hick outfits in the countryside that well, may not have. They might object good... to that. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of uh, term, but okay. Yeah. Yes, they're smaller airports. <laughs> Their uh, facilities may not be up to coping with bad weather. So, uh, you know, I suspect they've got a lot of their aircraft stranded out, uh, you know, in uh, um, the Netherlands. Uh, uh, you know, I don't, not, I don't mean Holland. Holland. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean Holland. I mean, uh, I'm trying to think of a non-rude way of saying out uh, out in the, in the rural uh, backwaters of America. Yeah. A lot of the places so, that I uh, fly, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. And, and so, my, so I fly um, in and out of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so once you get airplanes stranded, uh, you know the the whole chain of flight uh, of uh, flights they do, I guess, just breaks down. So it must mm-hmm. be hard to get them going again. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Uh, why awesome. Why only Southwest? I mean, surely everyone was having a few problems. Southwest just had the worst of it. Is that right? That is correct. I think they said 85% of the cancellations were from Southwest Airlines. So they took an overwhelmingly, um, you know, more significant um, brunt of this whole operation. Yeah. It's just like a – And the numbers – the numbers that I was seeing were that like uh, the other three majors were in like the five to 15% cancellation per day range or maybe five to 20%. And Southwest was in like the 60 to 70%. So it was significant step up <laughs> and mm-hmm. just in the quantity of cancellations. Yep. Boxes. Uh, yeah. Boxes and, uh, says the poignant to poignant system. Um, the uh the senator that was saying that um the problems uh you know need to be looked at um particularly communicating with consumers yeah it is a problem when you're trying to run a low-cost carrier and one of the you know main features of low cost is that you keep staff employment down to an absolute minimum just enough to run the airline really when you get in a situation where you've got massive breakdown uh in your traffic flow you've got passengers in all the wrong places getting stuck there you've got baggage uh, lost etc that minimum number of employees that keeps the airline ticking over nicely when all the conditions are right they're completely overstretched, uh, and they just don't have the backup uh, to be able to cope with really severe situations like they found themselves in. So that's where it all breaks down, really. And and that's why I think, you know, in the old days, you used to have spare people to help you out who could come to work. And, uh, you know, you they, they were a bit of a drain on your company finances when everything was running fine because they didn't really have that much to do but when you had a problem they could step in and help organize and help communicate and it seems that southwest have fallen foul of that as almost any airline would quite honestly because everyone's cut to the bone yeah and mike can make a very good point here and and southwest doesn't go out of their way to correct this misnomer uh, which is that they're a low-cost carrier they are not a low-cost carrier. As uh, the CEO mentioned, they're one of the largest airlines 
operating here in the United States. And if you look at their ticket prices and compare them to other carriers, which is very difficult to do because they don't, they're not on the same systems that all the other airlines right. are on. They, they keep it all to themselves. And uh, you'll find that in many, many cases, they're not the least expensive option uh, for flying here in the U.S. And, uh, and not like what we're talking about with like Frontier and Spirit and some of the other carriers or, Ryan, or Allegiant, but right. Ryanair over there in the uh, U.K. and that kind of thing. It's they're, they're a different animal, actually. Um, but yeah, they just I think that it, I think that that is such a common thought because United and Delta and American all operate the exact same way, right? They have their giant hubs. They have tons of support or regional carrier assistance. It's changed a little bit because they own a lot of them now, right? But yeah. And whether you're flying any of the three of them, you have to pay for a checked bag now. And they have, you know, it's just Southwest between paying for not paying for bags and the way they board. They just do things. So many things differently. Right. Um, and in many ways, I'd say better than yeah. the, uh, the majors do. Um, and, uh, Micah also made a good point. Thank you, Micah, uh, that, um, they, their, you know, fleet of aircraft are all 737s. It's a common type rating. So all the pilots and all the flight attendants can operate every single airplane in the fleet, uh, which you can't say for, you know, most other airlines in, in the world actually. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, the other thing I was going to say is, oh, you, the point you were making, Nick, about, you know, reducing the number of uh, personnel uh, because to, to make the cost as low as possible. Um, I was at a frontier pilot on the jump seat also on this past trip uh, who said that uh, they have gone to a complete um, um, non- human interface as far as like telephone you can't if something happens on frontier you cannot call somebody and talk to somebody everything is done on your phone or your uh, internet browser and he said that he you know i'm sure that saves them uh, quite a bit of money but he said that it's just like you know a problem waiting to happen when uh, the air, airline experiences some sort of meltdown, especially when it comes to yeah, internet that, that kind of software is great if you're familiar with it and it's everything's working fine. Uh, but as soon as you get a breakdown and you need someone to step in and do something the software hasn't been programmed to accomplish, that's where it all falls over. Yep. Uh, I think it's also important to note real quick that a lot of the public consternation about this situation and like why Buttigieg is getting involved and senators are, are starting to squawk is not just because of the um, poor customer experience, but a lot of people are upset about the fact that uh, Southwest got a significant bailout um, or got a significant sum of money that some people call a bailout. And, and now the public, the general public is wanting them to be held accountable, um, which I understand, but it seems kind of weird that um, they're looking for a certain level of uh, service based on based on something that's not really related to it in my eyes, I guess. Yeah. Did you see Larry's message? There? I did, uh, Liz. Okay. Um, yeah, I am, and I'm trying to download the uh, audio as we speak. Okay. okay. Um, yeah, we're, we're a little bit of a behind the scenes here. Um, this is going to. Uh, be uh, significant for our getting, getting to, to know, know us, us segment. Yeah. 
We have and a, a late submission. We have a very late submission in the midst of our recording. Uh, somebody has sent us. But glad in. to send it. Oh, I am too. Uh, very, very glad. Thank you, Larry. Um, but uh, so let me just take a moment. Every just time add I a couple more minutes onto things here. Thank you. Every time I try to download this thing, Apple Music wants to play it. Thankfully, I don't think you heard any of that going nope. on, did you? Nope. Okay, good. No, no. <laughs> but I did. <laughs> I don't know what you guys are saying. <laughs> like, okay. stop, stop talking. Um, Sylvia has an interesting comment here to Nick's last point. Uh, Tom, Sylvia has a an interesting comment uh, regarding Nick's last point. I'm sure they'll be held as accountable as the banks in 2008. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Probably so. Yeah. And you know what? Not it was another interesting thing. A lot of people I've been talking to um, as far as fellow pilot crew members and flight attendant crew members were saying, oh, this is going to be such a black eye. I don't know how they're going to recover from it. And I said, are you kidding me? Yeah. Two weeks from now, three weeks from yeah. now, everybody yeah. is going to completely forget about this. And well, I said, at the bottom line, well, maybe not completely forget, no, but the bottom the line. Sorry, is the fact that people are looking at the price of things, price right? And the convenience, stuff. all those other factors. And that's going to be the bottom line. And I don't really, honestly, I don't think that this is going to negatively impact Southwest in the long run, maybe in Half the short people term. People won't even be aware. Um, this is yeah. Going most on. of the people are, are not going to even be aware that this happened, you know, to be honest with you. But, um, and that's just the way we are in this modern world of uh you know the way we have a very short memory about things and uh and that's yeah that's that's good and the other thing that's going to help is the fact that the ceo and other upper management people out getting out there and apologizing and they're you know they're they're not going somewhere and hiding in a corner and hoping this will all blow over they're taking responsibility for it in fact the uh uh CEO uh, put out a um, uh, well. What, what would you call that, Liz? A, a statement a meeting, or yeah, a town hall saying, or whatever to yeah. his uh, employees, employees, basically yeah. saying, "I take, I'm accountable for this. I take yeah. responsibility for it." You know, and again, that's one of those things that I said. You know, geez, he would not make a very good politician because they don't do that. They don't take accountability or you know yep. blame for anything, and they just can you know, deflect oh, it. It's somebody else's fault. So, yeah, so I think that's going to help in the short term. And in the long run, as I said, I don't think this is going to have any effect on them at all. That's just my personal opinion. Um, you know, should it have? Maybe, but it won't. Yeah, that's one thing that uh, was kind of, and I'm sure that I, we're just getting like a, a small snippet of what all's going on, but there was a lot of, it seemed like there were a lot of uh, messages and, and uh, kind of, just people's mentality on social media that they are aware that the people at the airport are not the cause of this situation. It seems like so often, like all when I'm traveling, at least if something happens, somebody misses a flight or a bag gets lost, you'll see somebody like agitated dealing with Freaking the uh, agent at the door and man, they just, they don't have anything to do with it. So I'm, I hope that, um, the people that are tied up in this little issue are, um, or have a little bit of compassion for the uh, employees that are, are dealing with it, who really don't have any impact on that outcome of it. Well, you know what the answer 
as to that. I know. Nick. Probably not. I mean, <laughs> you're, if you're thinking that people have some kind of common sense <laughs> regarding who is actually yeah. responsible for something, you know, yeah. and they just want to vent their frustration, right? And uh, it, the employees, they make an easy mark, especially if you're. Yeah. If, God, God forbid that you might be walking through with an, uh, a uniform with that airline's logo yeah. on because mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're the first person they're going to pick on. Yeah. And that. That's was uh, that was what was so interesting to me uh, when the jump seater from Southwest was talking about the meltdown, and it was he was very defensive, and and I couldn't figure out why, but now I understand why <laughs> because you know when I after that I started realizing and hearing all the news reports, I'm thinking, oh, okay, yeah, this is no good. I mean, we've at Acme we've had you know major meltdowns, well, what I consider a major meltdown, but nothing compared to this as far as number of. Uh, Flights canceled and customers uh, affected. Uh, let's see. Richard McKinney says one of the complaints is Southwest Airlines just reinstated their dividend versus investing in a better computer system. Oh, they reinstated their dividend versus investing in a better computer system to help prevent what happened. Well, I don't know that that's true or not. Um, if if so, I, I would imagine that whoever whoever was involved in making that decision to put the money. Um, in dividends, which is an important thing, you know, don't get me wrong. If you're out there an investor, you have to make your stockholders happy. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's difficult to decide exactly how to manage that kind of, uh, investment, whether you invest in the stockholders or you invest in the, uh, in the, in the actual infrastructure. And it's just a matter of time. If your infrastructure is weak, that uh, something bad's going to happen. It's going to bite you. It's going to bite you. Yep. Okay. The first Ethiopian item and then. Okay. Let's uh, go to C in the news. And this is from uh, the Aviation Herald again. An Ethiopian Airlines Airbus A350-900 registration Echo Tango Alpha Yankee Bravo performing flight uh, 809 from Addis Ababa to Johannesburg, South Africa with 68 passengers, 12 crew touched down hard on Johannesburg's runway three right at 1257 local time. So in the middle of the day, rejected landing, climbed out about 10 degrees right off the runway heading. The aircraft climbed to 8,000 feet, subsequently positioned for an approach to runway three left and landed without further incident about 20 minutes later. The aircraft was still on the ground in Johannesburg 12 days later. A local source told the Aviation Herald the aircraft suffered a hard landing and a runway excursion and went around. According to ADSB data transmitted by the aircraft, the aircraft descending was descending at 500 feet, 500 plus feet per minute at the time of touchdown. Mm, that's kind of firm. Uh, touched down about 120 meters or 400 feet past the runway threshold. Uh, changed 12 degrees to the right. Climbed through 400 feet above ground level, about 460 meters or 1,500 feet to the right of the runway center line overflying the hangars east of the runway. <laughs> the folks in the hangars are going, whoo, what's that? Um, hmm. Let's see. So we have some photos of the damage. I trust that uh, Liz has been showing yep. us that. There's the runway uh, scraping of the right wing tip um, as it uh, quite a ways uh, scraping there. Of course, you're going at a pretty good uh, clip. And speaking of clip, there's the clip wing. I guess they cut off the damaged portion of the uh, wingtip and uh, covered up the uh, so it wasn't exposed to the elements 
Um, but uh, let's see. On December 3rd, 2020, by the way, this happened, I think I mentioned, uh, November 6th of 2021. So last year, a little bit more than a year ago. Uh, on uh, December 3rd of last year, uh, South Africans uh, CAA released their primary preliminary report rating the occurrence an accident. Uh, let's see. Let's fast forward to uh, today or recent um, update from, is this the final, uh, Liz? Yeah, final report, December 23rd. Hmm. I think December 23rd is probably a good time to release a lot of things that <laughs> yeah, you don't yeah, want yeah. to watch. <laughs> yeah. Yes, right. Bad news day. Let's see. The uh, SACAA released their final report. Uh, the probable cause the pilot applied excessive right rudder input while attempting to line up to the runway center line, which caused the aircraft to overdrift to the right and experience a significant slide slip, slip buildup and roll. Uh, departure on the right. Subsequently, the right wing tip contacted the runway, despite the left side stick input. There was a left crosswing component, which reduced um, closer to the ground. Early flare initiation caused the aircraft to float over the runway, and thus the aircraft missed the touchdown zone. No evidence of wind shear, even though the pilot stated its presence. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting one that... Um, uh, the the QAR reading, what, what, what's QAR stand for? I'm not sure. Um, indicated that the aircraft touched down with the left main landing gear for one second at um, 8.4 degrees left bank angle. The pilot flying stated that this point, uh, at this point, 30 feet above ground, there was a wind shear condition that caused him to have an unstable touchdown and therefore initiated the go around. According to the QAR recordings, there was no wind shear. Uh, during the decrab maneuver at approximately seven feet above ground level, the pilot applied excessive right rudder input whilst attempting to line up to the runway center line, which caused a progressive increase of drift angle and a right side slip and the subsequent roll departure at a maximum roll rate of 13 degrees per second, reaching a maximum of 35 degrees right roll angle. Yeah, that's going to touch the wing in any airplane that I can think of. Uh, the transition from air to ground on touchdown allowed more rudder deflection authority as per intended uh, on the ground. As the rudder pedal input was maintained, the left slide slip, slip and subsequent induced right roll continued to increase. Um, anyway, so we're looking at some of the METARs uh, for the incident time. And uh, the winds were variable, anywhere from 280 to 340 or 300 to 360. But it looks like the velocity of the wind was steady at 16 knots, 320, 330. So that's um, almost a 90-degree um, left crosswind, left to right, I think. I'm not sure exactly what the heading is on yeah, three left. Yeah, that sounds right. about right. Okay. Yeah, you have experience there, Nick. Um, oh, I've so, been in there lots of times. Yeah. So you have not only experience with this airport, but also with the Airbus product and how it works and how control laws work and that sort of thing. So what's your take on this? Uh, well, I think the the quick access um, recorder, QAR, so it's a kind of an instant access flight data recorder. Oh, so it doesn't okay. take an awful – yeah, it's an, it's – easy to download data from that as opposed to uh, the data recorder which is mounted in the back end um 
Yeah, the um, the the uh, crosswind technique for the airbus is actually quite simple. Um, you you just push uh, off the drift uh, using the rudder because you've got the aircraft uh, in a crabbed um, situation so that uh, you're tracking on the centre line of the runway with your nose pointed a bit into wind to compensate for the crosswind. And when it comes time to straighten the aeroplane for landing, you just push off the drift, um, apply a little... Uh, aileron because uh, the aircraft will be yawing and the the wing that's moving forwards will tend to rise so you do that just to keep the wings level and um, whatever you do you don't over flare because if you've got a crosswind as soon as you straighten the airplane you'll start to drift off the runway uh, because now that crosswind is not being countered by your crabbed attitude anymore. You're gonna, it'll have an effect on you, and it will drift you off the runway. So, the idea is to n- not over flare as this uh, this captain did, uh, and you don't apply too too much kick either, because it, you're turning what is it's only a twenty knot. 22 knot crosswind that's it's not a huge amount of drift what is i'm guessing eight degrees of drift you only need to push off half of it anyway you're not required to straighten the airplane completely because in the contact that the wheels will make with the runway and the natural weather cocking um you'll the aircraft will straighten itself to complete uh, that and um you know you everything will be fine and beautiful just a bit of smoke and bob's your uncle um, so it sounded like uh, a rather ham-handed uh, attempt to kick off the drift. Uh, and then, you know, because he got a lot of yaw on and held it on for too long, he got a lot of roll. The secondary effect of uh, yaw is roll. Got a lot of roll, uh, which he didn't counter. Uh, and then having hit the runway, uh, eventually, uh, seems to be from a floating position. You know, he was floating down, it said. He got quite a high rate of descent just to bring the aircraft down onto the runway. Perhaps he started panicking a bit as he started to drift off. Um, that rudder he was holding on suddenly was magnified by the fact that, yes, you get more rudder authority on the ground because now you need to keep the airplane straight on the runway to prevent it weathercocking into the crosswind and running off the side of the runway so that you get more rudder available to you. Um, but um, so, you know, it all sort of came together into a bit of a nightmare for him. If if he'd just been a bit more relaxed and a bit more easygoing and perhaps did it less mechanically, in other words, put his rudder on and then watch for the effect rather than just you know, slamming his foot forward and hoping for the best. Uh, I'm speaking from my imagination as to what happened, but uh, uh, certainly the data seems to suggest it was a bit of a ham-handed or ham-fisted attempt. Mm -hmm. I agree. Uh, That's what it seems to me, but I'm glad that we have somebody here that has Arabesque experience to kind of explain that to us. The other thing I had a question about, Nick, Captain Nick, is the, uh, I guess the original attempt and the incident occurred on three right. They came back around and landed on three left. Is there any advantage to that? Is it like a longer yeah, runway? It's much or? closer to your parking spot. Oh, there, okay. There, I'm, I'm only joking. Three <laughs> right's the short runway. 
Three left is the long runway normally used for takeoff because, of course, mm -hmm. let's remember that this is an airfield that's like five and a half thousand feet airport elevation. So um, you need a significantly uh, longer runway than normal for, for a heavy aircraft to take off. So three left is the long runway. Is that the one that has uh, the crown and, and the... Uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, yeah, that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if, if you do have a problem, uh, then landing on three left is a lot more relaxed because it's a much bit bigger and longer runway. Gotcha. Having said that, three right is fine. It's just that the turnoff most people take is about two-thirds of the way down. So you want to get yourself on the ground and slow down for that turn-off. Otherwise, you've got a much longer taxi in if you go right to the end. You've got to go right round the perimeter of the airport, and it takes a long time. So most of us wanted to get it on the ground and, and under control so we could uh, turn off on the, the big turn-off and get to our parking spot quickly. But uh, other than that, you know, they've both got nice ILSs. The, it's a big airport, both big runways, uh, no significant um, difference from a touchdown point of view, uh, landing on the right to the left. Uh, I'm just going to mention uh, the effects of uh, the high altitude. Don't forget that uh, uh, up there, um, the air's just a little bit thinner. So you will be carrying more ground speed when you uh, make your landing uh, in order to keep the airspeed air to the correct levels because the air is thinner. So you land going a bit faster over the ground and the aircraft will have consequently a little bit more inertia. So you need just to consider your, um, the point at which you uh, rotate for um, the flare. Uh, you do it. Uh, you take up a little bit of the flare, take up half the slack a little earlier, perhaps just 10 feet earlier than you would otherwise. Uh, and perhaps with reading his brief, this guy might have gone, oh, yeah, I've got a flare a little earlier because of uh, the airport elevation. So perhaps he just overdid that little bit. But normally you do. You'd add an extra 10 feet to your normal cues for... Uh, flaring in the two stages, stage one, stage two, uh, for touchdown. So maybe a slight miscalculation on his part. Yeah, yeah. I've also noticed that in airports that are higher elevation, it, as you mentioned, the thin air, higher speeds to compensate, etc. But also just the way the aircraft responds as far as roll rates and everything, the way the controls react to your inputs are affected as well. They're a little bit more sluggish. So that's my experience anyway. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, let's continue with this. Um, an interesting turbulence injury. This is from Paddle Your Own Canoe. Uh, an airline passenger suffered fractured ribs during a freak accident on board a domestic flight in Japan earlier this year, despite wearing a seatbelt when turbulence rocked the airplane shortly before landing. Details of the aircraft on board an Airbus A320 aircraft operated by Starflyer have recently been released in a progress report into the investigation by Japan's Transportation Safety Board. The aircraft was operating a short flight between Tokyo, Hanada, ha Haneda, maybe, to uh, oh, uh, Kitakyushu in January. Yeah, you're quite right. Haneda. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, what about the second uh, one? Oh, yeah, that was, that was a good attempt. <laughs> well, thank you. In uh, January, when it hit turbulence on final approach for the landing, the aircraft was swung from side to side 
during the incident, causing one of the passengers sitting near the back of the plane to be pushed into the armrest. The passenger told investigators that he immediately felt pain to the right side of his body, but the pain didn't go away. So after several days, he decided to go to the hospital for a checkup. Doctors discovered that the male passenger had suffered fractured ribs as a result of being pushed into the armrest. Japanese accident investigators say that they have already carried out interviews with those involved in the accident and, and have analyzed the weather forecast on the day that the accident took place. The investigation will now focus on what caused the accident, what could have been done to prevent the passenger from being injured. Despite the freak nature of the accident, the vast majority of injuries sustained by passengers and crew members in turbulence events occur when someone isn't buckled in. As it mentions here further in this article, um, recently 36 passengers were injured when a Hawaiian Airlines flight from Phoenix to Honolulu hit severe turbulence. I believe, yeah, we covered that on the last episode. Yeah. 11 of those injuries were considered serious, and 20 passengers and crew had to be transported to the hospital for further treatment. Um, and most of those in that in, in incident, uh, the, most of those who were injured were not wearing seatbelts at the time of the accident, despite the seatbelt sign being on at the time. Yeah, well, we know that sometimes it really doesn't matter whether it's on or off. People are likely to not have their seatbelts fastened. Anyway, so it was an interesting one. I guess, And I can see, especially with um, an Airbus or, Airbus or any type of an airplane that has uh, wing-mounted engines, uh, it seems that sitting back toward the tail of, an, of that type of aircraft, the, um, the amount of movement from side to side is considerably more than uh, an airplane like iFly with a T-tail. Or if you're sitting closer to the wing or even closer to the front of the aircraft. And I could see that if you, if you get some pretty good side-to-side kind of turbulence, that uh, an injury like this could occur. Yeah, and, um, you know, there's a way to wear your seatbelt, and just buckling it it may not be be all that you need to do. Those of us that float in the military, we we know how to strap into an Mm -hmm. aeroplane. I'm not kidding, because, you know, there there was not an ounce of give. Uh, If you were intending to do something severe in the way of maneuvers, you would strap yourself in with the straps, tight Mm -hmm. um and it's quite possible i'm not suggesting that this is actually what the situation was that he had his uh, lap belt quite loose which would still allow him to move around in his seat uh, to a significant amount uh uh, and the fact that he was the only one on the aircraft that appeared to have suffered an injury makes me think there must have been something slightly different about either himself or mm-hmm. how he strapped himself in that made a difference. I believe the same. Yeah. As you said, cinch that darn seatbelt down, you know, not don't yeah, cut off all the blood for. flow, yeah. but you know, close. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Like a tourniquet. Okay. Otherwise it's just, you're just going to move around in, inside the loop of material and it's not yeah. going to do a lot of good. Nope. It'll have the same effect that the uh, armors had. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, let's. See. Oh, also from paddle your can, own canoe. Um, let's see. Looking. Yeah, you were. I can tell. Um, she said she was looking. Uh, oops. No, I'm not supposed to repeat what you're saying. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. It's annoying. People out there who are annoyed by that. Um, 
And just a reminder, uh, if you're listening to the audio-only podcast, most of the time, or pretty much all the time, we're doing the show, um, recording the show live. I'm the only one that can hear what Liz is saying. So that's why so at times I'll watch the YouTube. Um, you know, mention or repeat what Liz had, has just told me because nobody else can hear what she's saying. Unless they happen to be listening to the audio-only podcast after the fact. That t- tends to introduce a lot of latency in our conversation, however, if they wait until, what, yeah. three or four days later right. to hear what you're saying. That's yeah. a big latency. That's a yeah, huge latency. Anyway, I'm trying to find a sound file here, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Uh, item E, news. A massive 15-meter-long emergency slide accidentally deployed on Emirates A380 Super Jumbo at Manchester Airport. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot. Very impressive. <laughs> yes. Oh, we got to hear Liz uh, on the on the uh, video. <laughs> it was more than 16 inches. <laughs> it was more than 16 inches for sure. An emergency slide on an Emirates Airbus A380 Super Jumbo was accidentally deployed shortly after it arrived at Manchester Airport on Monday morning. The slide, which is officially known as a slide raft because it can be detached from the aircraft and used as a sea raft in the event of a ditching, appears to have struck a jet bridge that was being positioned at the door where the slide deployed. Uh, or, yeah, Manchester Airport was declined, has declined to comment on the incident, but thankfully it is believed that no one was injured in the in- incident. Accidental slide deployments carry a high risk of injury to airport ground workers. Photos shared by Dave Branson on Twitter showed the massive 15-meter-long slide fully deployed with emergency workers looking on. The slide that deployed is known as the U1 left door because it's the first door on the upper deck and it's positioned on the left-hand side of the aircraft. The upper deck emergency exits are more than 25 feet above the ground. So to mitigate the risk of passengers freezing in panic from the height, the ramps are curved. Now, that was something that I learned from reading this article. I thought, oh, that's Yeah, I didn't know that. Uh, emergency slides must be able to, to deploy and inflate in just six seconds. But the slides of the A380 are designed to inflate in just four seconds. Once the deployment is started, there's no way to stop it. Uh, the reason for the accidental deployment at Manchester on Monday isn't yet known. Uh, but the most common cause is cabin crew failing to disarm the doors on arrival. Of course, there is a cross-checking procedure to mitigate this risk, but even this doesn't catch every mistake. The A380 also has a special light and alarm to warn crew members that the door is still armed as they go to open the door. But again, this isn't 100% reliable. The aircraft involved in the incident is believed to be a six-year-old A380 Registration Alpha 6, Echo Uniform, November. Uh, The aircraft operated Flight 21 and arrived in Manchester at 6.45 a.m. The return flight had been canceled. Passengers rebooked. There you go. Now, interestingly, uh, I'm still trying to work out how this happened because um, one of the procedures, uh, the the guys mentioned uh, on this article, most of the procedures to prevent you from forgetting to disarm a door before you open it uh, on arrival. But one of the other procedures that our airline used uh, with very similar doors uh, was that they were opened um, by the agent on the outside of the aircraft because if you open the door from the outside, it shouldn't trigger the slide. Um, Now, now, you... (laughs) 
if you open the door from the inside uh, and you haven't um, disarmed it, they will trigger the slide. So I'm just wondering why em Emirates uh, had decided that they were going to open the doors from the inside or whether they, well, that was another of the mistakes. So not only did someone forget to disarm the door, they decided to open the door from the inside. And it, it you know, normally the, um, the whole uh, jetway is in position, fully located, and then the agent leaves the controls which they've used to, to guide the jetway uh, up to the aircraft and position everything. Uh, and then they go to the uh, the door and knock on it, and the cabin crew on the inside give a thumbs up to indicate that they have disarmed the doors, and then they open the door, and um, that should be the way it operates. Um, or, or in this case, the slide doesn't operate. Um, it's really because it's, it's an incredibly dangerous thing to be uh, in the way of a slide that is... Uh, about to come down because uh, it it does it it extends out very quickly with a lot of pressure and a lot of force to get that great big uh, solid lump of uh, you know hard rubber out in the into the form of a slide to let everyone roll slide down it uh, and you know you can get you could get severely injured if you were in the way of it. Yeah, looking at that slide, I mean, wow, that is quite a water slide uh type yeah, of uh, it's experience. a double slide as well so you can mm. go two down it two at a time um as, and it we can also detach and form a great big uh, narrow long thin raft so that uh, you can probably get you know 30 or 40 people perhaps more in that uh floating around in the ocean got something that comes up as a big canopy that uh gives you protection uh, over your heads if you're floating around in it, all that kind of stuff. So it's a quite a sophisticated bit of kit, very expensive, and uh, will be expensive to uh, replace. Let alone, it's probably done some damage to the actual jet bridge. It must have forced the end of the jet bridge up. It's not. It's just underneath the door. It's not actually part of the door. It's sort of uh, below the uh, level of the door. It comes out of a, a sort of frangible panel there. Uh, so, it, you know, it might not have gone into the entrance of the jetway, which is good. Oh, obviously, it didn't. You can see it hanging out underneath. Right. We had a 747 when one deployed in flight, which is quite interesting. Wow. That's yeah. not good. Uh, flapped around a lot. And I think some bits of it went down an engine. Um, mm. they, they turned around, came back home. <laughs> you know, what's interesting, uh, the way those doors are designed, I guess, on the Airbus fleets, uh, is different. I don't know what the um, uh, some of the more modern Boeing jets, uh, if they have the same kind of a system where if you open the door from the outside, the, the slide will not deploy. But on the airplane that I'm flying, everything is, of course, very basic. It's a basically the it's a DC-9 what I'm flying. And we use something called girt bars on the um, on that attached to these brackets on the floor. So when the door is armed, they actually actually physically take the bar that is physically connected to the slide and attach it to these brackets on the floor so that when the door comes open, regardless of who opens it, whether from the outside or the inside, just the action of the door coming, swinging open, pulls the uh, slide from the uh, carrier and, and uh, after a certain amount of travel, it inflates. Uh, so it can, and, and in this case, it's, it's the door level. So 
yeah, it's a bad thing if these things deflate when the jetway is, you know, attached to the uh, front door of the aircraft. And uh, a lot of injuries have occurred when uh, accidental slide um, expansions or slide inflations have occurred, deployments have occurred. So, hmm, interesting. Interesting. All right. Um, so Nick Camacho has informed us that he's going to have to go. Uh, so uh, we're going to do one more news item. Nick, And did you take a look and see if there was anything that looks kind of interesting to discuss? Uh, yeah, any leave? of them are fine with me. The The Ethiopian accident report is, uh, is interesting. We could chat about that. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So this is going to take a little bit longer. So... You know, you've made your choice and now you have to stay. <laughs> um, so item F, uh, the Ethiopian Boeing 737. <clears throat> excuse, it's hard for me. I get choked up. Yeah, you're choked up. Yeah. <coughs> and I say max. Very emotional. Okay, the Ethiopian B-737 uh, max near Bishoftu on March 10th, 2019, uh, which uh, impacted terrain after departure. On the 26th of December, just a few days ago, uh, Ethiopia's Air uh, Accidents Investigation Branch released their final report, or Air Accidents Investigation Board maybe, released their final report concluding the probable causes of the crash were, um, and here's the probable cause that came up with repetitive and uncommanded airplane nose-down inputs from the MCAS the Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System due to erroneous AOA, angle of attack, input, and its unrecoverable activation system, which made the airplane dive with the rate of 33,000 feet per minute close to the ground, was the most probable cause of the accident. Contributing factors, the MCAS design relied on a single angle of attack sensor, making it vulnerable to erroneous input from the sensor. Uh, During the design process, Boeing failed to consider the potential for uncommanded activation of MCAS, but assumed that pilots would recognize and address it through normal use of the control column, manual electric trim, and the existing runaway stabilizer non-normal procedure. The uh, uh, OMB and Emergency uh, Airworthiness Directive issued after the Lion Air accident several months before, included additional guidance but did not have the intended effect of preventing another MCAS-related accident. While Boeing considered the possibility of uncommanded MCAS activation as part of its FHA, I'm not sure what that stands for, um, it did not evaluate all the potential alerts and indications that could accompany a failure leading to an uncommanded MCAS activation. The MCAS contribution to cumulative AOA effects was not assessed. The combined effects of alerts and indications that impacted pilots' recognition and procedure prioritization were not evaluated by the manufacturer. Uh, Absence of AOA disagree warning flag on the flight display panels. The Boeing 737 MAX crew difference CBT, that's computer-based training, prepared by Boeing and uh, delivered to pilots, did not cover the MCAS system. Yeah, that was a major, (laughs) a major, uh, uh, thing that uh, they shouldn't have done, or they should have explained the MCAS system to operators. Um, Anyway, so those are the the ones that I thought were the, I I kind of highlighted. Um, But we need to also consider 
the NTSB response, and this is from aerotime.aero, uh, A-E-R-O. Um, the NTSB, the, Na- the U.S. National Transportation Safety Board, uh, has criticized the Ethiopian Aircraft Accident Investigation Bureau for omitting its final comments in the recently published final report of the fatal Ethiopian Airlines Boeing 737 crash. Uh, so this, I guess they didn't take all the steps that were necessary when working with international um, organizations and preparing these kind of reports because they're important because we learn things from you know these crashes and we want to make sure that everybody you know does the right thing and is aware of potential risks and such and. Uh, the National Transportation Safety Board, I think a little bit bent out of shape because of this. And their um, criticism uh, is as follows. Uh, The NTSB agreed that the MCAS was part of the cause of the crash, yet they believed that the probable cause also needs to acknowledge that appropriate crew management of the event, per the procedures that did exist at the time, would have allowed the crew to recover the airplane, even when faced with the uncommanded nose-down inputs. As such, the probable cause of the accident would include MCAS inputs due to erroneous AOA data, as well as the flight crew's inadequate use of manual electric trim and management of thrust to maintain aircraft control or airplane control. Now, this is just aside from me. That's one of the glaring problems in this accident uh, sequence in my mind, is that once they set the power for takeoff, uh, so, you know, you have takeoff thrust there, the throttles were never retarded. This is all the way the two or three minute long flight. I'm not sure how long exactly. But when that thing hit the ground at 33,000 feet per minute, those throttles were still in takeoff power. And while they were trying to address the trim runaway or the MCAS activation um, and the overspeed warnings were going. And that was one of the issues they said was a problem here because there were so many things that the air crew was having to deal with and sounds and warnings and everything else going off uh, that they their brains didn't, I guess, recognize the fact that this airplane was going extremely fast. And in fact, that um, created a situation where the manual trimming system on the airplane was ineffective because there was no way they could overcome the aerodynamic forces on the stabilizer because of the fact that the power was up the whole time. And I forgot exactly how fast the speed got on the airplane, uh, but it was you know way over uh, what uh, it was designed to do. Anyway, um, so that was my little aside there. Furthermore, while the, this is back in the article, furthermore, while the Ethiopian uh, accidents, Accident Investigation Bureau published 10 contributing factors. The NTSB wants to add two additional factors. First, Ethiopian Airlines' failure to include procedural information on how to respond to uncommanded nose-down movements, which were outlined by Boeing's flight crew operating manual and the FAA's airworthiness directive, both of which were published four months prior to the crash. Secondly, the Boeing 737 MAX impacted a foreign object that damaged the angle of attack sensor, resulting in several erroneous activations of MCAS. I guess they mean prior to this accident. Investigators 
uh, Ethiopian investor, investigators found that the new airplane experienced unexplained uh, electrical and electronic faults within weeks of entering service and in the weeks and days prior to their accidents. Um, so again, the NTSB is saying, yeah, because this thing, the, the AOA sensor was damaged and uh, they didn't even mention it in their report. Um, the U.S. investigators pointed out that while the AIB was right that erroneous AOA data was provided to the aircraft systems due to the sensor's failures, they did not provide the root cause of it, damage from impact with a foreign object or bird. As such, the report misses the opportunity to address improvements for wildlife management at the flight's departure location uh, in uh, the Bole International Airport uh, in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. The AIB did consult with Collins Aerospace, a manufacturer of the sensor. Uh, however, the NTSB pointed out that the report does not acknowledge Colin, Collins' fault tree analysis, which demonstrated that the recorded flight data recorder data from the in accident were not consistent with any internal failure of the AOA sensor. Instead, those data were fully consistent with previous instances of partial AOA vein separation due to a bird strike. Um, and the NTSB's response to the final report added that while the Ethiopian investigators questioned the functionality of the manual electric trim system, it did not present facts to support these findings. Boeing's later assessment found that no trim system failure scenarios were consistent with the FDR uh, data and that the behavior of the electric manual trim parameter recorded on the FDR was consistent with flight crew input. So I guess they're saying that the Ethiopian AIB was trying to say that, well, the reason why the electric trim didn't work is because, I mean, it wasn't a fault of the crew. It was because it wasn't operating properly or correctly. And uh, they're saying here that there's no evidence of that. Um, also in its report, the AIB questioned whether the indicated airspeed disagree and altitude disagree alerts appeared on the primary flight displays. The NTSB deemed it is an incorrect assumption as the condi conditions were met for the IAS disagree and ALT disagree messages to be enunciated to the crew members. Uh, their lack of conversation or action in, res in response to the enunciations should be explored in the context of the flight deck environment, workload, crew experience, training. The NTSB also argued that the assumption that the MCAS made the aircraft uncontrollable is incorrect. The U.S. investigators reasoned that if the crew had manually reduced thrust, what I mentioned earlier, and appropriately used the manual electric trim, the airplane would have remained controllable despite uncommanded MCAS input, adding that the crew did not perform the, the described non-normal procedures following the unreliable speed, stall warning, runaway stabilizer, and overspeed warning alerts. Uh, the report failed to provide the full transcript of the cockpit voice recorder data. The NTSB also considered that the Ethiopian investigators inappropriately, inappropriately added analytical commentary and altered the transcript without consulting the rest of the investigation team. Uh, the current presentation of the CPR transcript prevents the reader from having a complete and objective understanding of the event, concluded the NTSB. <sighs> Sorry, I know it took a while for me to read all that, but... Uh, and it was this, you know, those were just little excerpts of the Ethiopian AIB final report and the uh, NTSB's objections to many of the items that the uh, AIB uh, put out. 
All right. So now I'm going to stop talking and let my fellow co-hosts add their commentary. (laughs) Don't all speak at once. uh, I have a little bit of, uh, let's see, it's hard for me to um, differentiate just how poorly the initial design and certification of that airplane and training of that airplane was handled. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, the NTSB can, you know, basically coming out in this, in this report or not in this report, in their comments to this report. Right. And saying, um, the pilot should have done this and the pilot should have done that. And, and I agree with you that the airplane could have been, uh, controlled, if they had taken certain actions, right? The throttle throttle management was obviously uh, poorly managed, but um, man, it just seems like the NTSB coming out and saying, uh, you said the airplane was not controllable. It actually was controllable. And why aren't you looking at the birds? Um, just, it seems weird to me. And I don't know, I don't know why. Um, I don't know. I don't know if they have a uh, concern to kind of ensure that they are uh, continue to be viewed in a good light or or what. But I just well, which that would be an, uh, unusual uh, for the NTSB because usually the NTSB right. and the FAA are like at odds and right. Um, and and I think the NTSB has made it clear through all these crashes and and activations of MCAS and implementation and the certification and all of that, that, you know, and I don't want anybody to take the wrong message away from what we're trying to say here. The Boeing definitely, I mean, that, that, that system, and we've talked about it a lot, um, the way they designed it, the changes that were made that uh, they didn't tell the FAA about, and perhaps the FAA knowing that it wasn't exactly the way that it was originally presented, but they went ahead and le- allowed it to be certified like that. There were so many things that were wrong, and that was obviously the the catalyst that initiated this whole accident sequence. So you, you we're not saying that Boeing isn't at fault or the FAA isn't at fault. No, we're not saying that at all. They were you know, a big part of why this happened to begin with. But as I've been saying all the way from the beginning, if I'm in the airplane and I know nothing about any of this and the airplane is trimming and I didn't act, I didn't do anything to cause it to do what it was doing, I would take action to stop it from trying to kill me. And I know you've heard me say that so many times and, and, uh, so I think that the, I think the NTSB, I'm, again, I'm, you, you could agree or disagree, are trying to um, say that maybe the Ethiopian Air Accidents Investigation or Air Aviation Investigation Bureau, whatever it is, AIB, um, is like emitting some things to make some, not make it look so bad for their Ethiopian pilots, perhaps. Right. I don't know. And, and I agree with that. I just... Um, it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to like figure out where the threshold is. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, I, and I agree with you that this, in this instance, it, it probably should have been, um, handled differently. I, I mean, one thing that bothers me is that so many people were like, oh, it's just a training issue. An American crew would have managed that better. Um, and I don't even know if I disagree with that. And I just think it's a different 
you know, so many, I think a lot of the, uh, Western pilots, I just think it's such a different approach to training, to training pilots, right. Where you have a lot of the countries that don't have, um, vibrant GA communities, I guess, or I I don't know. I don't even know how to explain that, but like Mm -hmm. in the United States, you have a, such a broad, um, expansive experience by the time you're a captain at an airline, whether it's, um, flying GA for three or 400 hours and then becoming a CFI and then flying for the regionals or whether it's going into the military and doing all this stuff. Whereas a lot of the, a lot of the countries that don't have uh, a GA system in place do the ab initio training and like focus so hard or focus so much on getting pilots, uh, into the airline seat that it just seems like they might miss out on some of those opportunities to, um, have that like outside of the box troubleshooting thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, but then on the other hand, you know, like, and Micah made a few comments also about like the NTSB is saying that this is a recoverable and controllable event also, which, which I get, but like, at what point do you, um, at what point is a threshold, right? Like the, the United, uh, the Al Haynes flight, right? Like that was a, that was a scenario where, the airplane could have rolled over and slammed into the ground and they were able to control that airplane back to the ground. But I don't think that if they, if (laughs) I don't think if that airplane would have rolled over and hit the ground, anybody would have said, well, there was a scenario where that airplane could have been controllable. So I guess that's what I'm, that's what I struggle with a little bit. Well, and I think that, you know, they're looking at this incident as the second incident of MCAS causing right. or being the catalyst for a series of events that resulted in the loss of many, many lives. And I, I don't think that they would come out with the same attitude regarding the Lion Air incident because mm-hmm. there was nobody knew anything about this except what uh, Boeing and the FAA, right? And not everybody yeah. at, at those two organizations knew uh, what was being set up. But I think. I just wanted to make one point about what you just said, and and I know it's easy for uh, those of us, especially Western pilots or Western trained pilots, to say, "Well, it was because you know they were Ethiopian um, citizens or or Indonesian pilots." But I think, and uh, something I read here that that uh, damaged AOA sensor caused several MCAS activations before this in this airplane itself this actual airplane before the crash and so clearly if it had happened several times before this crash there were ethiopian pilots ethiopian airlines crews who who reacted properly and kept the airplane from crashing so i guess it's it's easy to make to take that broad brush stroke and say well it I, yeah was i ethiopian agree but i also or, think I also yeah. think it, I also think we just like, we'd have to understand that data set, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you said five pilots and I'm not, I'm not attacking you, oh, yeah. um, but I'm just saying, you know, like, uh, it, w- with anything, right? Like if you have a, like, if you have an engine failure, right, you could say like, well, five pilots had an engine failure on a multi-engine airplane and four of the crews were able to manage the incident and land the airplane safely. And one of the crews didn't. Um, that is a, that like that, if you say that, that kind of has a different viewpoint 
if you were to find out that like four crews lost an engine in cruise at 30,000 feet and one guy lost an engine at a hundred feet off the ground. Right. Um, so I just think, I don't necessarily think that Ethiopian, you know, if there was a uncommanded e- MCAS situation with an e- Ethiopian crew, um, I think that there's a lot to it, but also it's, it's like a one-off thing, right? Like it only takes one, it only takes one really great pilot to be able to salvage a situation that seems unsalvageable, but at the same, same time, right? It only takes one, um, poor pilot or, or, uh, less competent pilot to mismanage a, a scenario. And so it's kind of a bummer that, you know, there's however many pilots there are in Ethiopia and, whether this guy's like a median level um, pilot or whether this guy was like at the bottom of the barrel. Um, there were just a lot of people saying like, Oh, this only happened because it was an Ethiopian crew. Yeah. Well that, yeah, that would be um, an inappropriate thing to say, in my opinion. Um, now, Captain Nick, you've been very quiet about all of this and I'm <laughs> sure you have something to say. Well, not really. You guys have actually voiced, um, more or less everything I, I would have said. Um, it seems to me that uh, the NTSB uh, um, felt it appropriate to include two um, causal effects into uh, the report that um, the Ethiopians put out. And I understand why they would want to do that because I see, uh, I see little doubt that the Ethiopian report colours the report in favour of their crew uh, and lays ultimately everything at the door of uh, Boeing and um, this American aircraft. Um, So I I can understand why they would want to level the scales a little bit, and I happen to agree with them because I think that if you're not prepared to uh, issue the full CVR script uh, which would allow everyone to hear what the crew was saying you would then be able to properly analyze uh, what was going on on the flight deck uh, and work out what crew resource management uh, events were taking place how the crew operated whether they were uh, capable and doing the right things at the right time to attempt to save the aircraft Uh, and i think such when when you're not willing to release the full CVR, you've got to ask yourself why not. That that is, I, I don't like that. You That's know, suspicious. Yeah. Ethiopian, just like every country, should be completely open about what has occurred. Um, so I don't like that. Uh, on the other hand, I think uh, other than um, the fact that um, the NTSB believed that. Um, Appropriate crew management would have allowed the crew to recover the aircraft. Yes, I believe that would have been true since a previous crew, uh, when it occurred on a previous flight, if I'm not mistaken, or am I thinking about the Lion Air one, um, had a similar event and they recovered it. Certainly in the Lion Air situation, the Lion Air for sure. And yeah, yeah. yeah. So the this had the fault had occurred. Uh, on previous aircraft with previous crew and they had fixed it but i do take nick's point on board very well not every crew is equally capable not every 
crew handles the startle effect relatively early on in the flight of this very strange uh, maneuvers that the aircraft is doing and not every crew would be able to identify um, the root cause uh, it's the trimming system um, and they might take inappropriate actions uh, including forgetting to move the down throttles uh, so I, I do see that and I think that should have been included but we're talking here now about a, a pecking order of causes that leads to a crash how high up that pecking order these two events that um, NTSB think should have include, be included would come, they haven't said. Uh, is it going to be the primary cause? No, I don't think so. Is it secondary, tertiary, somewhere down in the middle? I don't know either because, uh, you know, <laughs> we haven't got the NTSB version of the actual report to see where they would have placed it. All we've got is saying these should have been included. Uh, I also go, yeah, um, if the, if the a bird strike had caused the uh, sensor uh, malfunction and it hadn't been correctly analysed by the engineers and fixed appropriately, which led to the failure occurring when it did, uh, that is also a problem. But now we're talking about bird control over an airport. Yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah, In an American report, the NTSB would have included that, but that would have been way down yeah. near the bottom. You know, it wouldn't right. have been an important factor. Um, but I think it, what is an important factor is something that's almost glossed over is that NCAS operated from a single AOA probe. Yeah, uh, bad design. And, and that, that, that's just bad design. But that goes back to the fact that we're talking about a 737 where the, all the basic systems have basically remained unchanged and they've just tweaked them all the way along. So right from word go, that sensor would have been uh, only one of two and it yeah. independently would have operated lots of things. But now they've introduced that one sensor into a system which had a significant uh, effect on the controllability of the aircraft if it, if it went wrong. Uh, and I just, they go, well, no one has really uh, double mentioned that, but Boeing should not be still producing brand new airplanes where such an important part of the flight control system is based on a single sensor. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I can understand the NTSB wanting to level the, the, the balances. Um, and I fully acknowledge that they should be allowed to do that. I dislike um, the Ethiopian attempts to uh, brush over some areas where they should have provided information and they perhaps put the emphasis poorly because they don't want their country to be smeared they're quite happy for america to be smeared <laughs> but they don't want their country to be smeared when in fact there is a shared blame for this mm -hmm. uh you know w where the balance is is um really um for the report to reveal but because they've missed bits out they haven't been able to do that yeah and and i will um masha says swiss cheese Funyuns. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we all like funyuns. Let's get on the on the on the right uh, page here. Uh, but uh, I, and, and Micah makes a very good point, and something that I did not mention. There was a lot of information in that final report, and I I didn't mention it. Uh, but the NTSB said that the updates from Boeing were available about the MCAS uh, and the previous crash with the Lion Air, but the Ethiopian Airlines did not distribute them or inform their pilots of the updates. So, I mean, that's yeah, a huge... I think the huge... time period was they were yeah. available for four months. Mm -hmm. Quite honestly, in the life of an airline, 
uh, and the length of time it takes to get these things through to the flight deck, that is not actually a very long time. These things can often take considerably longer than that, even in a well-run airline. But I take your point, Micah. Four months is not a very long time. For some reason, I was thinking that the second crash, uh, Boeing had distributed a some sort of documentation saying, you know, this is how to handle it. And I thought that the second crew had utilized the procedure or whatever they had told them to do. And the only, and the fault was that they let the airplane get too fast. And because of that, the trim system was overridden by aerodynamic forces. Yep. So that's, that's my takeaway from it as well. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I, I need to go back to basic design uh, capability of an airplane um the, the, a trim system manual trim system that can't be a, a used by the crew when you get <laughs> to high speed uh has been well known in the 737 for decades since more yeah. or less since the damn thing came out how they haven't fixed that yet i don't understand how can you let an airplane carry on for that length of time and you're still producing brand new ones and you haven't overcome this problem of being unable to manually trim the airplane when your airspeed gets too high. People know there's a workaround. You unload, you mm-hmm. go to zero G, but if you're very close to the ground, that's not going to be a, a very easy thing to attempt. Uh, yeah. So I'm going, well, that's a design thing that Boeing should really have picked up very, yeah. much earlier on and fixed it. I agree. Not only that, I've heard from uh, people that fly the airplane and know something about the 737 MAX is that, I, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I, I've heard that the manual trimming, the manual trimming wheel has decreased in size over time as well with the uh, subsequent generations of the airplane. And uh, due to the design of the avionics and instrumentation etc in the center console so again i don't know if that's true or not but that would even make it worse that you know a system that needs to work uh when the electrical trim system is not uh and then you reduce the diameter of the you know the 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 manual the what the uh manual action i can't uh, is, you know, they reduce the, uh, the, the arm, you know, like in physics, the shorter the arm, the less power you have to, uh, you know, use to counteract, remove the stabilizer, et cetera. So again, I don't know if that's true or not, but, um, that certainly yeah. didn't help. And you're I, right. I think that, yeah, go ahead, Nick. No, finish your thought. I was going to make one. No, I was going to, that's it. Well, I was just going to say, I, I think at the end of the day, uh, one of the things about pilot air is that it is, Pilots are human and it is just not possible to get rid of pilot air. And so when you look at, when you look at like all the things that happened in this flight, I am not saying that pilot air was not involved, Mm -hmm. but when you look at like the mismanagement of the certification process and the mismanagement of the design process, and then the fact that you have two humans who did not do the right thing in a incredibly scary emergency situation it just feels like yeah. two of those things are much easier it's to like solve not than fair the third to, one. To, to get down on them for it because, yeah, yeah. I can say it. And especially somebody like you, Nick, who was intimately involved in, you know, uh, design, engineering design and certification processes. Uh, yeah, I'm sure that that's something that's, you know, very important to you. And many of us will just kind of 
you know, gloss over. Not only that, of that, but I make mistakes in the cockpit all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what? So I know all about, so I know all about pilot <laughs> <Yeah>. error. <laughs> yeah, it's only the magnitude of them that makes the difference. Yeah, right. That's true. Absolutely correct. Okay. Do you think well, this will be the last time we have to talk about this? <laughs> I'm hoping so. I really yeah. am. Yeah, you're right, Nick. Uh, but it was the final report, So, and it was the final yeah, no, it's, crash. No, it's worth mentioning. And, hopefully and I they think won't the, crash anymore. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think the, the, the slight dispute between the two countries is, is fascinating. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think the NTSB are correct to try and make sure that everything that they think is important is covered. Ethiopia, I think, are not doing themselves any favors in the eyes of the international community by appearing to cover cover mm-hmm. up some areas uh, that might otherwise be revealed. I agree. All right. Well, Nick, thank you for taking out uh, some of your precious time to join us today. I know you're very busy. Uh, little, uh, just a little bit of uh, getting to know us before you leave. Uh, let us know uh, what, what's been going on. Uh, Did you have well, a nice yeah. Christmas? I don't think I've been on the show since I was on in Dayton. Uh, unfortunately, in a couple of days, I'm heading back to Dayton, so I don't know if I'll be able to make the show next week, if we have a show. We'll see. Um, but yeah, had a pretty good Christmas. The weather that was affecting everybody in the country um, had a little bit of effect on us here in Kansas. Um my sister who lives in Texas ended up um, pushing her trip up off a week. So um, we weren't able to get everyone all together at the same time, but I was able to see my siblings at uh, different points and got to spend a lot of time with my folks and um, got to actually, uh, I don't think we, I don't think I've even touched on this, but uh, my dad bought a boat, a little sailboat um, here towards the end of the year. And, uh, so got to open that up and let um, all of my little nieces and nephews go through it and get excited about coming out and uh, going out on his uh, his sailboat in um, in the summer when it warms up a little bit. So now, in addition to um, having to uh, having to compete with all of the family stuff to get. Uh, his time to help me work on my airplane. Now I'll have to compete with his boat to try oh, to no. <laughs> get time to to work on airplanes. But yeah, it was a uh, it was good. It was a uh, it was a good holiday. And what's mm-hmm. happening and, tomorrow? Uh, with him? And yeah, what's happening uh, tomorrow, Nick? Anything significant? Uh, well, I'm hoping if I can get everything wrapped up, um, the plan is to go test for my power plant uh rating tomorrow and that would get me <laughs> finished Good up with all of the uh the third uh, the third leg of the stool right yep yep uh, and i'm admittedly the most nervous about this one because i am um i am the least well versed i'm the least versed or least well versed however that would be i know mm-hmm. the least about um turbine engines so you know there was a few things in the airframe that i wasn't super comfortable with but you know, when it comes to power plant, I, f- I do feel like there's a significant portion that I don't have just a really uh, good Nick, grasp if, on. So if you don't get your power plant um, exam passed, you can still work on gliders. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I can still work on I can still work on air powered aircraft, just too. Just can't, can't touch I the engine. Can't work on the airplane. So we'll see how that goes. And, I, you know, I think it's just like any. um I think it's just like most other um, exams where if I get tripped up on something or if I don't pass 
a section. I just have to get retrained and retested on that section. I don't oh, think I have to take the whole test again. So, okay. well, what is it that uh, Rick would we'll tell see. you uh, about the uh, jet engine, or maybe uh, Captain Nick will uh, kind of uh, give you uh, the best information? I, I learned it from Dana. That was such squeeze, bang, blow, isn't That's that? That's exactly it? right. Yep, <laughs> that's all you have to say when they yep. talk about jet engines. Yeah. Yep. Suck, squeeze, bang, blow. All right. Well, good luck with the the examination the, tomorrow if it the happens. Bang, the bang and the blow bits are always the best. That's that's what I've been told. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. Uh, again, thank you. Uh, I know you're very busy. Thank you for joining us today, Nick. And uh, the audience uh, appreciates your presence and uh, points of view as well so uh really yep, means a lot thanks. it was good being with you guys we'll yeah look well done nick good luck next year all, all right. right see you bye-bye all right let's get back over here to uh evernote anything else to i think we pretty much said about as much as we can about that uh, yeah i think if you go report. back over the previous discussions we have mm-hmm. we've repeated a lot of the points we've yep. made we have over the years so and, and i think um you know it's a discussion has been had by many people and there are an awful lot of people out there whose opinions won't be changed by mm-hmm. what we have to say. But oh, true. on the other hand, it's uh, interesting to see what uh, an august body like the NTSB thinks. So that's, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. I agree. And this next item in the news, uh, again, from paddle your own canoe, uh, flight attendant pleads guilty to trying to smuggle fentanyl strapped to her abdomen through TSA checkpoint. I have very little patience for stupidity. Uh, Let's see. (laughs) She pleaded guilty to a single charge of attempting to smuggle the fentanyl uh, strapped to her abdomen, abdomen at San Diego International Airport with the intent to distribute the highly addictive and powerful drug. Teresa Lee White from Texas was arrested in October after she was stopped for a random search while she tried to get through a special expedited security screening lane for pilots and flight attendants. And then we call that here a known crew member, KCS. No, KCM, I'm sorry. (laughs) Get my letters right. Uh, The ex-Mesa Airlines flight attendant, who operated regional flights on behalf of American Airlines and United, was pulled to one side as she attempted to use the known crew member lane at the airport and directed to walk through a standard metal detector. And that's always something uh, we call those random, um, just randoms examinations. Uh, examinations. And uh, they've been increasing um, in, in recent time, most likely because of incidents such as this. And uh, anyway, after setting off the metal detector, uh, she was subjected to a pat-down search in a private room where a package that had been strapped to her abdomen was discovered. White initially told law enforcement that the package was a mercury weight loss device. Never heard of a mercury weight (laughs) loss device. Yeah. I'm just wondering myself. So fentanyl is like, you know, that it's a, it's a drug and it like in pill form or very powerful, but I'm thinking what, what set off the metal detector? I mean, metal usually well, that's, sets off. Well, that was going through my mind. I'm assuming if if it's pills, it'll be in a uh, a foil pack. Perhaps it was the foil. Oh, okay, know. could be. Yeah, that uh, that could be. But yeah, I don't know. Perhaps next time she'll take the pills out and put them in something non-magnetic. 
Well, I don't think there's going to be a next time, Nick, uh, <laughs> but uh, maybe. I don't okay. know. A canine unit was called in and alerted to the pa- alerted to the package. A drug field test indicated that the substance was fentanyl. On Thursday, she entered a plea agreement in which she pleaded guilty to a felony crime of possessing fentanyl with intent to distribute. I don't know. It doesn't really tell us. Does she? Does it say anything what the plea deal was? I don't no, it doesn't say no. what the sentence no. was, they but they she didn't. was... She's carrying three and a third pounds. Mm -hmm. That's an awful lot of damn pills. It is. That's probably enough to kill tens of thousands of people. (laughs) Um, Let's see. She arrived in San Diego on a flight from Dallas-Fort Worth on October 4, where she exited the airport before returning later the same day. Despite being off-duty, she was allowed to use the known crew member lane. We, We are allowed to do that. Uh, to bypass normal security checks, but she was randomly selected for an enhanced check. She says she deliberately attempted to use the known crew member lane to facilitate her crime. She's due to be sentenced on March 24, Uh, 2023. We'll find out then. Uh, I guess she faces a maximum sentence of 20 years imprisonment plus a $1 million fine. (laughs) Wow. Was it really worth it? Yeah. Well, you know, for someone like her, that's pretty steep. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, if you're a you know a, a real drug lord, a million dollars wouldn't yeah. would be peanuts, wouldn't it? Pocket change. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Twenty years might worry you a bit, but uh, mm-hmm. anyway, right. uh, I'm sure that'll be brought down to a more acceptable level for a, perhaps a first offender. I don't know. Possibly, yeah. Depends on whether they want to make a an example out of her. Um, could be well, yeah, yeah, exactly right. And the fact that she's using a system that so many uh, flight crew rely on to get through the uh, airport promptly, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if people start abusing that system, you know, it's just going to disappear. <laughs> well, funny you should mention that. I mean, uh, after well, not after this necessarily, but uh, the TSA now is taking over the complete uh, control of the known crew member program. Um, and, uh, some people are, are, are worried that they're just going to scrap the whole system. Yeah, that would be very sad because there are so many trustworthy and, uh, noble people in the airline industry. It would be a shame to see it spoiled by a few bad apples. (laughs) Thanks, Liz. Um, all right. Uh, she said something very, very positive and pleasant about me. Not. Okay. Uh, What, she'd trust you? No, she doesn't. Apparently she doesn't. Would you trust him with your pension, Liz? Um, Yeah, I think so with money, sure. Oh, yeah. Well, you really, no, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. Okay. Uh, Next uh, one again from Paddle Your Own Canoe. Uh, It's not chicken this time. Man, yeah, and sticking with uh, security. A man finds himself in a sticky situation <laughs> after TSA busts him for trying to conceal a gun and bullets in jars of peanut butter. A Rhode Island man has been arrested after the TSA discovered that he tried to sneak a semi-automatic handgun and a clip of bullets through security by dunking the various parts in two jars of Jif peanut butter, which I, I love Jif peanut butter. Just to... Mm. Uh, Liz doesn't I just like, like a peanut butter. Person. You're a skippy, huh? I don't know. I like Jif better. The incident occurred no, no, on Thursday. Wait. Sun Pat. Oh, is that a popular brand there in uh, England? Yeah. Okay. Be chunky though, crunchy. Um, oh, we're gonna have the old crunchy, uh, chunky, smooth argument as well. Uh, I'm a crunchy man myself. Yeah, 
Dead, Are you? Yes. I, I tend to, uh, I don't know, I tend to side with the smooth. Anyway, the incident occurred on Thursday when, I, I know I'm outnumbered here, uh, when TSA officers were carrying out a routine x-ray screening on checked passenger luggage at John F. Kennedy Interna- International Airport. The passenger was passing through JFK Terminal 8, which is used by American Airlines and British Airways, as well as a slew of other international airlines, including Finnair, Cathay Pacific, China Southern, and Ethiopian Airlines. Given the fact that passengers on domestic flights are generally al- allowed to check guns into the hold luggage, as long as certain conditions are met, this incident poses the question as to whether the man was attempting to smuggle the firearm into a foreign country where gun ownership is much more controlled. Yeah, because he really didn't need to dunk the thing in peanut butter if he was it was in checked luggage, which it was, and he was flying domestically. Um, yeah. Yeah, so the gun parts were artfully concealed in two smoothie, smooth, creamy jars of peanut butter. Uh, there you see Creamy uh, peanut butter yeah. lovers. Uh, okay. They're yeah. all villains. <laughs> well, apparently so. <laughs> <laughs> I bet that lady with the fentanyl, she was probably eating some of that smooth yeah, peanut butter. Yeah, she was probably too. a smooth peanut uh, butter lady. Okay, I'm guilty. Uh, anyway, oh, I love this. The gun parts were artfully concealed in two smooth, creamy jars of peanut butter, but there was certainly nothing smooth about the way the man went about trying to smuggle his gun. This is from John Essig, the TSA's federal security director for John F. Kennedy. I mean, Airport. it was only a two-two as well. I mean, yeah. I, I, that's supposed to be the uh, the caliber of choice for assassins, isn't it? I believe so. Yeah. Two caliber, small and light, and yeah. yeah. Oh, and <laughs> oh my gosh! Aisle <laughs> boxes. They, oh. boxes said they found it in oh, a jiffy, dear. literally. Oh, dear. <laughs> gosh. Uh, if you, hey, if you enjoy really corny, bad jokes, then this is the place for you. This is your place, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, so. In, oh, well, in, hang on a minute. Arnie yeah. has asked me if I like Marmite since we're on the subject of uh, spreads. spreads. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, I do. Thank you very much. I do like Marmite. I do too, actually, believe it or not. I, I don't find it offensive either. Smooth oh, or chunky Marmite. <laughs> if you get <laughs> chunky marmite, there's something wrong with it. Oh, oh really? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, maybe I should look at the uh, expiration date. All right. Yeah. Um, the uh, next item and last in our news today, uh, and the show is going to be mostly news today, uh, is this a, a, a really nice little story from, again, Paddle Your Own Canoe. Um, an abandoned, uh, no, Abandoned by a passenger at San Francisco Airport, Polaris, the puppy, finds a forever home after United Airlines captain adopts him. Uh, A puppy who was abandoned by a passenger at SFO Airport found a new forever home earlier this month after a United Airlines captain worked with the San Francisco Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals to adopt the dog. The puppy, who has been appropriately named Polaris, after United's flagship business class cabin arrived in the United States from an international destination earlier this year, but its previous owner abandoned Polaris shortly after their arrival in the country. United Airlines, however, came to the rescue and started looking after Polaris as if it was one of their own. The airline had to complete all the necessary paperwork to ensure Polaris was legally allowed to enter the United States and looked after the the puppy as he went through a quarantine period. During this time, Captain William Dale and his family decided they could give Polaris the home he deserved. 
United's customer service team took on quite a challenge to ensure Polaris would be safe, healthy, and find a loving home, explained the... He looks a gorgeous dog. Yeah, very, very, very cute. Um, let's see, the SP, the SCPA was honored to have received the call for help from United United Airlines to help facilitate the adoption. As a mark of gratitude, the airline has donated $5,000 to the charity. It's a great feeling to see this story come full circle and that Polaris will have a loving home with United Airlines Captain Dale and his family just in time for the holidays, commented United's Director of Customer Service, Vincent Pasafiumi. <laughs> the uh, donation was normally formally handed over during a celebratory, a celebratory is that they missed an R in there? I think a celebratory adoption party, which was held at SFO on December fifteenth. All right, very good. That's a, a happy ending and good old Polaris, as you said, uh, quite a fine, a handsome young man. Well, yep. dog actually. And well under the skipper for taking him on board. That's really nice. Yeah, that's awesome. All righty, um, it is now time to get to know us. Getting to like us, getting to hope you like us too. All right. Uh, This was sent to me. I'm going to go ahead and jump right in, if you don't mind, Captain. Absolutely. No, please do. One of our uh, APG community members uh, wrote to me and said, Hi, Jeff and APG crew. My brother Ray is a long-standing member of the APG community. In fact, I have to blame him for giving me the APG syndrome. Oh, you still like him? You still call him your brother? Hmm. All right. Um, Ray has been a private pilot for nearly 35 years. He has his commercial and instrument ratings. He is a first responder and currently works as a flight medic on a light fl- life flight helicopter. He is truly one of America's heroes and has saved countless lives. On Christmas Eve, Eve, December 23rd, his family lost everything, including their vehicles, in a tragic house fire. His daughter was the only one home at the time when the fire started and luckily got out by jumping out of a second-story window. If there are any APG community members that would like to help, a GoFundMe account has been set up to assist them piece their lives back together. And then he gives us a link to the GoFundMe page, which we'll have in our show notes for those of you who are um, you know, wanting to help out this uh, hero um, and uh, his family. And uh, thank you all so much for the great show. Keep the blue side up. And this is from Glenn Cad, Cadwallader, Cadwallader, yeah, and uh, so again, um, that there's a picture there. I think of uh, his brother Ray in front of the uh, Life Flight helicopter, and or some kind of a helicopter. I'm not. I don't know if that's the Life Flight helicopter or maybe a looks like almost a military helicopter there in that picture. Yeah, it kind of looks Black Hawkish, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, so probably not the Life Flight helicopter, but. Anyway, uh, yeah, just, I mean, it's, it's never a good time of year to lose everything you have. Uh, but especially, you know, during the holidays here, it's, it's especially. Oh, actually tragic yeah, event. Tragic. I can't think of a worse time for it to happen. It's never a good time to yeah. have that sort of tragedy, but right when you're, uh, you know, expecting a wonderful family holiday, mm-hmm. that's terrible. It is. Okay. So gang out there, you know, let's, uh, let's show them what we have Support for our fellow 
APG community members and uh, and and give uh, generously to the uh, GoFundMe account. Again, we'll put that. You know what we can do right now? I think I can go ahead and copy that and put it in the chat. See if that works uh, for those who are here now with us uh, while we record this live. Let's see if it'll allow me to do this. And it's thinking about it. Yeah, there yeah. it is. I'll put it okay. on the screen. Awesome. There we go. It's on the uh, screen and uh, in the uh, chat room. And we're going to continue on with um, catching up with me. Um, mm-hmm. Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, as we've mentioned, you all know, if you've been a listener to the show any period of time, I love singing at my church and uh, in the shower. But um, this Boy, involves... Did you sing? Uh, I What? Boy, did you have to do a lot of singing? Yeah, I did a lot of singing. Um, Christmas, although not as much as last year, I think uh, almost twice as many masses last year. But this year, um, sang all the Christmas Eve masses at my parish church, um, four of them, including the uh, midnight mass, and then uh, the next day uh, came in about midday and and sang at the twelve fifteen, and uh, it wasn't a burden at all because I love singing. And uh, let's see. Then I left on a trip on Monday, the 26th of December, which is my birthday, and uh, went up to Newark and back and then to Tulsa for our layover. And, uh, you know, you heard of this guy named Larry Gregory. Uh, He calls himself Geezer. Uh, He met me at the arrival gate. And uh, now I talked to him before I he met me at the airport because he wasn't able to break away and uh, go to the McNelly's pub for our our uh, little uh, impromptu meetup in uh, downtown Tulsa, and uh, I, he had joked that he wasn't able to get the mayor uh, to uh, show up for my arrival, and I knew I know that he was being uh, that was tongue in cheek. Uh, but with Larry, so yeah, maybe not. Maybe he yeah, I think he probably does for really know the mayor and yeah, his wife. Anyway, so I go out there, and as soon as I exit into the into the uh, jetway area, uh, not jetway area, but the the gate. terminal area, the gate um, desk or whatever you call it, called so many darn things. Um, all of a sudden, I notice that uh, I, I say hello to, to Larry, and he's holding um, a, a little mini recorder, and all of a sudden, this happens, and I have not listen to this yet. Uh, Larry sent this audio file to me or us while after we started the show today. So fingers crossed. <laughs> we'll see how this sounds, but I'm going to click the play but- button and see what happens. It's his birthday today. He's been flying with Delta 25 plus years. And the reason why I come up here is about 34 years. 34 years. 34 years. 34 years. 34 years. And we just want to yeah. say happy birthday yeah. real quickly. Happy birthday, birthday to you. I, I, it sounds like your choir was there. <laughs> Thank you, Cheryl. And, uh, we also want to welcome you to Delta Flight 951 service to Atlanta. As you see our airplane just Record, we're recording. Uh, we can oh, just, we, I can fix it in post. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> and actually, he recorded more, but uh, he cut all that other stuff out. So like a good post-edit uh, sound so person nice does. Uh, 
Yeah, wasn't that awesome? Uh, thank oh, you very much, Larry, Larry. for yeah, uh, coordinating that. It was uh, not something I was expecting at all. Of course, I never really know ex- what to expect. I thought he'd have with, a with big Larry. banner in the window like he of course, had before. Now you've entered your final year yeah. as a, an airline pilot. I have, is that yeah. Right? Countdown is it's, wow. it's fewer than 365 days now. So, yeah, um, I know. I think it's Golly. a lot fewer than that. <laughs> well, yes, I think it may be a lot fewer than that. I don't know, depending on how things progress during this year. So, RV delivery. Yeah, the RV is uh, scheduled to be delivered some point, uh, at some point this year, somewhere in the late spring to uh, summertime, I'm hoping. And I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to make it until. Uh, November, December of next year, but we'll see. Okay. But if you're listening to the show, you'll, you'll find out all all about how this progresses. And uh, thank you very much, Larry, for uh, making that happen. That was uh, really special for me. I I really do appreciate it. So later, so we went to uh, our um, layover hotel, the Hyatt Regency and, oh, I'm not supposed to say that. Some hotel in downtown um, Tulsa and uh, got changed and got picked up by Sean King in his very nice uh, pickup truck. And uh, I offered uh, my first officer to uh, go with us as well, but he, uh, I think he had put two trips back to back and he was feeling kind of tired and wanted, and we had an early uh, sign in time the next day in Tulsa. So he um, bowed out. And so Sean and I drove over just a few blocks away from the hotel to a place called McNelly's Pub in downtown Tulsa. And we were met there by uh, JJ Tulsa, JJ not Pittsburgh, uh, AKA Jordan Rayleigh, his real name, and uh, Paul Shelton, who uh, was at the the first big meetup that we had in Tulsa a few years back. And um, so had a great dinner, great conversation, uh, gave JJ Tulsa, uh, all of us did a bunch of uh, great advice for his uh, aviation career, and then Paul uh, ended up picking up the tab for all of us. So thank you. That was a nice birthday gift, Paul, for for doing that, and uh, just had a great time. We didn't stay out too late. I got back to the hotel a little after seven o'clock, and so I got a good night's sleep for, before the uh, next day. So that was awesome. So thanks again, Sean, JJ, and Paul for uh, meeting up with me downtown, and Larry at the airport, and Larry at the airport. Yeah, it turns out that his granddaughter um, also has a December 26th birthday. So, oh, wow. yeah, that's why he couldn't uh, make it uh, with us downtown. You mean thinking, you're not imp- more important? No, than I, I can you believe that that I'm not as important or more important than his family? Yeah, yeah that's shocking. Yeah, that is a shock. All right. <laughs> then, then where did you go for the rest of the trip? The well, the next of the trip, uh, we uh, went to Atlanta and then uh, ended up deadheading to. Jacksonville, North Carolina, and um, which is in Kakalaki, yep, and uh, not far for, from uh, Camp Lejeune, a Marine Corps base. I think they do a lot of training at that base, if I'm it's not a lot mistaken. Of asbestos there, isn't there? Oh no, it's not asbestos, Liz. It's uh, the drinking water is. Uh, oh, okay. is, is, I know uh, there's a class action going. Yeah, on. big class action. I mean, that's all you see on the, exactly. <laughs> on TV is all these commercials for people that. We're at uh, Camp Lejeune between 1950-something and 1970-something, I think. I don't know. Anyway, um, so there. I uh, got back um, yesterday uh, from my trip. And, um, and Liz made me do the show. And then, yeah, Liz, no, you did not make me do the show, Liz. It's 
I was uh, yesterday we we had kind of talked about whether or not we were going to record a show this week, and we kind of left it up in the air. And uh, yesterday it was like I I don't know that these are again early mornings. I'm getting to be an old man. I'm 64 years old now, and uh, you know they kind of take their toll on me. And I was just not feeling. I I didn't have a lot of energy. Had not done any preparation whatsoever for the show that we're recording today and i've uh, oh yeah i think we should so no liz it was not it was not due to you that we're doing the show uh, i'm glad that you encouraged me to uh, to do this and um and i thank uh, captain nick and nick camacho and liz uh that they were uh, volunteering their their time to uh, help me do this thing today so um Going back out tomorrow morning to do a little uh, what we would call a turn or a out and back uh, trip from Atlanta to um, Asheville, North Carolina. That must be a really short flight. Eh? It is a for- short flight. It's like maybe around a half an hour um, wow. actual flying time, I believe. Look at Nick. Oh. What? I don't, I'm not no, looking at half an hour leg. It must be so funny. Yeah, it is. I, it's it's fun. I, I like these short legs. Um, these flying. These short flights. And um, my next scheduled trip is a week from today, uh, Thursday, the 5th of January, uh, to uh, a three-leg and then a one-leg back on the, on the second day. And I believe it's a Harrisburg, uh, Pennsylvania um, layover. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I do plan on picking up some extra flying between uh, the, the flights tomorrow and the next scheduled trip because it's just that time of year that sometimes they they need pilots out there to uh, fly fly you passengers around slack yeah so i'm expecting that i'll be doing at least uh, uh, one trip in between the trip tomorrow and the trip on thursday okay what's nick been doing yeah nick what have you been up to you caught me out there didn't you i was (laughs) was busy on the internet and checking my diary and Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, and I'd muted. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, no problem. Uh, not, not a lot. Christmas uh, has been a quiet family affair. Uh, my two sons came and joined us. Uh, and we, of course, ate to excess and drank to excess. So now my liver's uh, on the verge of packing up. But <laughs> keep on going, old girl. You'll be fine. Yeah. Um, not much really to report. We had a nice uh, family outing. We went to the cinema. We'd normally go and see something like a star wars movie but there wasn't anything out this year so this year it was the new avatar movie which uh, we went to the local imax and saw it mm. there and uh what a, a visual um extravaganza it was um i can't say much for the storyline but um you know the three and a half hours just flew by uh, it was it was wow. quite an impactful movie when it came to you know, just, uh, you know, how they managed to create these computer graphics so beautifully. I was uh, very impressed with that side of it. Uh, we had plenty to say on the negative side on the way home, but uh, no, I, I, I didn't regret going and seeing it. It was very Did, good. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but was that the uh, the 3D uh, version that you yeah. got to see? Okay. Yeah, we did. And, okay. and it was good. They didn't overdo the 3D effects, uh, which is great. There wasn't, you know, great things leaping out of the screen at you. They're a little bit like that, but uh, it was a bit more subtle and uh, just added to the storyline. It was very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was nice. And um, 
You know, I'm still planning through the Christmas pudding. <laughs> I'm the only one that eats it in our family. Uh, it's a great tradition, or, you know, sort of plum, basically uh, uh, dried fruit pudding. A figgy uh, pudding. We have here. You don't, you don't have it in the States, do you? Mm, no, but I remember that one of the songs talks about figgy pudding. Is that is that? The... Yeah, I'm sure there are figs probably in it. Yeah. Or you can put figs in it, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Um, and you eat it with brandy butter and, mm -hmm. uh, well, some Delicious. people do anyway. And lots Sounds of good. And now you're making my stomach growl. It, it is growl. Great, very filling, yeah. Mm. So all that was, all that was lovely, uh, thoroughly mm -hmm. good. Uh, and um, I often talk about my bowling uh, successes while we <laughs> – Pitched up to the bowling club yesterday and promptly got knocked out of the uh, triples knockout competition we were in. Oh. We had been doing quite well, but we faced a team of um, of really good bowlers uh, who bested us, which was a bit of a shame. So there you go. I don't have to worry about that competition anymore. <laughs> um, other than that, no, it's fine. My uh, uh, firstborn is sticking around with us for a another few days before he heads up back to London. And the other one has already disappeared to go and party with all his death metal friends. So uh, uh, that just leaves us. And um, our new dog. So she's uh, turning out to be a wonderful uh, member of the family, uh, is young Zeta, uh, very successful. Um, she's acclimatized very nicely to the anderson way of life so uh apart from uh, we've just got to tidy up a few of her um recall habits which aren't particularly good <laughs> at the mm. moment she uh, go out for a walk we're on a big piece of land which is great you know the army do training on it it's it's quite large and um she, she'll disappear for like 10 minutes at a time which gets me a bit worried because um, I don't, I like her to. St I would like her to stay a little closer. So we'll mm. we'll see if we can sort that. She does recall eventually, but uh, you know it's not exactly as good as some of my past pets have. Anyway, by the by, um, I got a new toy as uh, for Christmas. As those who are patrons will know, because I used it to record a little um, Patreon video, and this is. A DJI camera that is mounted on a gimbal, uh, handheld camera, uh, 4K, very nice quality, uh, and um, produces quite reasonable sound. I thought, Jeff, um, it wasn't oh, yeah. too bad. Just off yeah, the machine, great. it was. It wasn't a separate mic or anything. It was mm -hmm. uh, quite usable. Absolutely. So uh, pleased with that. I shall have fun trying to get to grips with uh, the automation because uh, it's uh, not exactly intuitive. Uh, mm. Let me see. Um, other than that, no real change from here, from me. Uh, looking forward to a small party with friends uh, over New Year. And then the New Year will be on us, and uh, we'll see how we cope with that. What about the cover art from our last show? <laughs> I love this. <laughs> uh, the episode 449. And and uh, those of you in the chat room will you know recognize so many of the elements of this art uh, based on the show, or many of you, well, all of you out there listening to the show. Um, but uh, the last show was entitled The Wind of Enchantment. And it was uh, quite a, uh, a team effort to come up with that title. That, uh, once indeed. we did, we went, oh, yes, that's it. <laughs> yeah, we. I thought we'd nailed it uh, when we got the final uh, wording. Uh, yeah, we. I was asked to... Uh, pick up some elements of uh, the last show which included uh, an airship 
that had been flying over New Mexico. And uh, somebody suggested it was in a Monty Python theme. Uh, I don't know quite how that came about. But anyway, we've ended up with um, an, air, an airship with a, the flag of or the symbol of New Mexico uh, emblazoned on the side. Uh, it's been attacked by an archer, archer so it's got I a bit of that. a leak. So it's at a little funny angle. Um, and um, the motto of New Mexico, as Jeff uh, worked out, is the land of enchantment. And since one of the Monty Python themes is some uh, trumpets uh, played from the wrong end of the elementary canal, um, we called it the wind of enchantment, yes. which I thought was pretty good, considering we are talking about an airship as well. So mm -hmm. uh, if you uh, like a bit of Monty Python, go take a look at that uh, artwork. Hopefully you'll, uh, you'll appreciate that. Yes. Oh, the uh, show number oh. is there, so you might have to look up towards yeah. the um, bottom playing trumpets uh, along the scroll uh, oh, that they're standing. The, the, yeah. the what? See if Excuse you can me? find it there. The, oh, the scroll. Oh, okay, I thought the you scroll. Were saying yes. something else. <laughs> scrolltum. The scrolltum. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Uh, th there's a great comment here for iHall Boxes for, for Nick. iHall Boxes says, very useful for capture. Oh, the new camera. Very useful for capturing that extreme ironing footage, Nick. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. That's, 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 yes. It's been a, a while since idea. we've seen an installment of the uh, extreme ironing, both from you and, uh, and Rick. I know. Well, yeah, I know. I, I was waiting for Rick's next um, adventure. Before mm. I try it again, because mm -hmm. I think he's a bit behind me now, isn't he? He is. Yeah, yeah. not not unlike those trumpets in the uh, artwork. Because <laughs> we haven't seen it for a while. Let's love just have a Python. quick look at that. What's that? Um, click. Oh, yeah. We there. We go. Here's a. Uh, Here's Miami Rick. Uh, just a reminder. Uh, yeah. Practicing for the extreme. Of course, this is pretty pedestrian. Uh, this is his uniform. Yeah. Uh, not sure. so. Not too extreme at all. So, no. Rick. Rick, can you hear us? No, we can't. Yep. I acknowledge there. Yeah, but we can't hear you. No. You're muted. I guess he's just going <laughs> to. Oh, no, he doesn't understand. He's uh, muted. Uh, oh, well, he's just going to continue his ironing, apparently. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so coffee fun. Just have a little chat about it. I know we don't have any. Do I even need a chat about it? Okay. Well, it's up to you. It's entirely nah, up to you. Sir. Coffee fun is okay. your way to support the show financially so if you're so inclined uh head over to airlinepilotguy.com maybe slash this week they coffee. can consider the gofundme instead yeah instead of uh yeah that's a good idea liz oh that's a nice idea captain incoming message all right the first piece of feedback is from gail she says, hi, APG crew. My local news station posted this story, and I thought the listeners might enjoy it. And this is from, uh, obviously, Gail is in Chicago area, NBCChicago.com. And uh, the title of the uh, news piece is a 73-year-old man pays $370 per month to live in a plane that he bought for $100,000 from a salvage yard. And he says, I have no regrets. Uh, Campbell is his name, uh, Bruce Campbell. Uh, his jetliner is parked on a 10-acre property he bought in the early 70s. Now, I think, we've t I think we have talked about 
this guy and his airplane in the past. Uh, it's been a few years, I think. Um, in the early seventies, or somebody just like him, yeah. an old guy with a seven twenty seven. I think I think it is the same guy though. In the early seventies, Bruce Campbell paid twenty five thousand eight hundred dollars for ten acres of land in Hillsboro, a suburb of Portland, Oregon. That's where my cousin lives, cousin Craig, cool. in Hillsboro, Hillsboro, uh, Portland, Oregon. Um, wow, that's in the seventies. Wow, that's only what uh, two thousand five hundred and eighty dollars per acre. Pretty cheap. Um, the electrical engineer who's now 73 years old tells CNBC, make it the dream began when he saw an airplane boneyard on TV when he was 15 years old, he decided he wanted to live in one in 1999. He decided he would follow through, but had no idea how to go about it. So oh, he he's a radiometer. He's a ham. Oh, I there. That I, explains I saw that mast outside <laughs> and I thought, oh, that looks vaguely familiar. Uh-huh. There you see between the two trees, uh-huh. he's got a nice looking mask going up there. Oh, I yeah. didn't notice. Mm, nice looking mask. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I don't, he's got I a can't... rotator and a big beam on top. Well, don't we all? Um, <laughs> and uh, let's see, or we think we do, apparently. Uh, he had no idea how to go about it, so he hired a salvage company to find him a plane. Uh, here's a quote from him. That was a whopper class mistake. I'll never do that again. Salvage companies are wreckers. He said, <laughs> I highly recommend just buying a jetliner completely intact and completely functional, except maybe the removal of the engines. Yeah, you know, as you do. After months of searching, the company found Campbell a Boeing 727-200, the model that I used to fly quite a bit, uh, a jetliner that was 1,066 square feet, and weighed around 70,000 pounds. It was found in Greece and is part of American history, sort of. The plane was used to transport the remains of the airline's owner, Aristotle Onassis, in 1975. The late Greek Argentinian shipping magnet was married to former First Lady Jack, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis at the time of his death. Uh, Campbell paid $100,000 for it. And the plane was flown from Greece to Oregon to prepare it for him to take ownership. Once the aircraft was ready, it was towed to Campbell's land through the streets of downtown Hillsboro. Wow. That process included removing the engines and other elements that make it so the plane can never fly again. It cost a total of $120,000. When you live in a structure like this, you feel a little more fulfilled with your life, he said. And if you're an engineer, a scientist, or anyone who appreciates the elegance and beauty of aerospace technology. It's just a happier place to live. Campbell's plane was originally owned by the late... Oh, we already talked about that. Um, Let's see. Uh, He added a makeshift shower, a temporary sink, a portable washing machine, a refrigerator, and a food service cart from another plane that serves as his pantry. In place of a stove, uh, Campbell has a microwave and a toaster oven, which he barely uses. He says, I'm a nerd. I don't cook, so it's a minimal kitchen area. Next to the kitchen area, Campbell has his futon sofa, which doubles as his sleeping area and his workbench. His monthly expenses are $370 a month, which includes $220 a month in property taxes and between $100 to $250 a month in electricity. Spends most of his time working on restoring old computer systems and giving people a tour of his airplane home. Now he spends most of his time restoring old computer systems, fixing different electrical systems on the plane, and letting people come over and tour his aircraft. 
I have no regrets about pursuing this vision. In my experience with my guests, I believe that humanity will embrace this vision wholeheartedly in enough proportion that we can utilize every jetliner which retires from service, he says. Hmm. Because he mostly splits his time between the U.S. and Japan, his hope is to one day have a plane home over there, too. It's intended to put a home which I love in a land I love and with people I love, he says. If I can simply regain my youth, everything will be fine. <laughs> yeah, that's a big request. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, he's got that, it's quite a big fuselage, he's got a lot of space. I'm not sure why he's only got a temporary sink and a makeshift shower. Uh, and a portable washing machine, uh, and he doesn't really have much to cook his food. You think he would actually be able to do it up a bit mm -hmm. better and make it a bit more homely? But uh, oh well, each to his own. Yeah. What did he say? He's uh, he calls himself a, a nerd. nerd. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And well, I, nothing wrong with that. And and uh, I guess he just doesn't care. Jingles doesn't care either. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, hang on. Uh, Liz is telling me the control room is calling in saying a, an update from Tim, Tim Van Ram. Uh, seems the FMS and the rental car had a hiccup with the clock. We're still driving. <laughs> now that the clock has been set properly, we have one more hour to go. Ah, okay. That's a long old drive, Tim. You must be very disappointed to discover you had an hour's error. Well, I'm just happy that we were there to be along for the ride mm -hmm. with Tim. Absolutely. As long as he didn't fall asleep, it's all good. Yep. Yeah, we don't want to. If it were just me, it could have been a dangerous situation where he could have fallen asleep and uh, driven off the road. But since I'm here with Captain Nick and Nick Camacho, he stays awake. Yeah, we'll keep pinching you, Tim. Yep. Okay. Um, wake up, Tim. Again. <laughs> Oh, speaking of Tim. Oh, well, hang on. No, speaking, no, no. Speaking of your birthday. Again. Oh, speaking of my birthday. Okay, let me again. get to the next item. Well, sorry. <laughs> you know, it only comes around once a year. Liz. I know. You know, I'm jerking. No, you, no, I don't. Um, okay, we got uh, something. Oh, and it kind of ties. Oh, sorry. So the cool thing about this feedback is that it ties in not only my birthday. Thank you very much, Liz, but also. The news item at the uh, yeah. beginning of our show regarding the um, the South. Well, here, we'll let Vernon tell us all about it. Here we go. Greetings, Captain Jeff, and happy birthday. One more year to retirement, according to my calculations. This is Vernon from Fort Morgan, Colorado, although I'm not in Fort Morgan, Colorado. We are celebrating your birthday at Old Town San Diego Mexican Food Restaurant because of the Southwest Airlines debacle. Our flight was originally scheduled for last night, that's Christmas night, and we should have been home by now. However, we're still stuck in San Diego and it'll be another day or two before we can hopefully get a flight. It was interesting to see when we came over the hill this afternoon and looked down at San Diego International Airport, there were at least two dozen Southwest 737s parked at terminals and across the runway. And I don't envy the guys in scheduling who tried to figure out how to get crews to those planes before they timed out. Anyway, that's my little bit of the story of being stuck in San Diego. 
Oh, it's not a bad place compared to the rest of the country because we're sitting outside waiting for our food. Anyway, wanted to wish you a happy birthday. And the background music uh, gives it away. I suspect you can hear it. That we're at Mexican food restaurant. And the last time you said something about my input, you missed the background music. So here it is, compliments of this restaurant. And I'll be interested to see how this whole story pans out with the Southwest Airlines uh, debacle. It seems like uh, United American uh, Frontier, some of the other ones that are in and out of here, even Lufthansa and British Airways are generally on time, but you look at the boards and the Southwests are just all canceled. Um, anyway, we're in the middle of that and uh, just going to do the best of it to stay, enjoy San Diego for another day or two. Blessings to you. Happy birthday and talk to you next year. Bye now. All right. Wait a minute. Let me figure out how to get this thing shut off. <laughs> ah, he figured it out. Yay. Thank you, Vernon, for the birthday wishes. And uh, now I just want to say, if you had flown Acme, you know, you wouldn't be there. But I don't know. Maybe that sounds like it sounds like a really nice yeah. place to be stuck. Yeah. Wouldn't mind being stranded. Go ahead, Nick. I need to add Vernon's uh, closing remarks onto every one of my uh, audio pieces <laughs> from now on. Yes. <laughs> hey, how do you turn this down? How do I turn this darn thing up? And I could just barely hear the uh, the mute. I did hear some some bass from the uh, the Mexican yeah. uh, music, but it mostly was the uh, the ambiance of the uh, oh. of the live. Uh, chatting of the uh, uh, oh yeah, passengers, like but, a, uh, a place where everyone was having a good time. Yeah, absolutely. It really uh, sounded nice, and yeah, I can think as he said, I can think of a lot worse places to be stuck than San Diego, California. So very good. Thank you very much for your uh, birthday wishes, Vernon. Very very nice. And finally, and this just came in today. This just came in today. Yeah, it's very interesting. This is from uh, Giovanni. He says, hi, Jeff. Hi, Liz and APG crew. My name is Giovanni, and I am a super fan of the APG podcast, even if I'm not a pilot. Uh, I think probably probably at least half or most, maybe probably more than half of the audience uh, is uh, not a pilot. And uh, yeah, as Liz just said, pilot license, not required. Uh, today, I've read about this incident here in Italy. Below, some links in Italian. I hope Google Translate will do its job. The incident has no major injuries. It's quite impressive because the emergency landing was performed close to the top of an Alps peak. Oh, good Lord. Yeah, so look at this. Um, yeah. And you know what? I actually have some uh, video to play. And so let me add that to the stream and hit play. Oh, it's already playing. And then I think there is some... There we go. Oh, there's that. The, the helicopter, the rescue heli helicopter flying uh, along the, the peaks of those out. Beautiful, huh? Now look at that. You can see the airplane right in, the in the middle of that. Or, yeah, he, yeah. he nearly made the, the, the little, peak. Yeah, it, it was flying through a saddle by the looks of it. Mm -hmm. Didn't quite make it through. No, but I'm glad they didn't overshoot. <laughs> 
I guess the uh, yeah the uh, quite uh, steep incline that uh, they they put it down upon as they were heading up the up the mountain. Uh, if they had gone too far, I guess they would have been going back down, which would probably not have been a good experience. Uh, yeah. hey, great false landing, really. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I don't suppose they're going to fly be able to fly it again, but uh, at least they didn't have to start eating each other. Like remember yeah, that like, uh, right. Argentinian yes. football team? Yeah, or? yeah. in oh, the yeah. in the yeah. uh, what what was that mountain chain there? The Andes. Andes, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't even know if they were Argentinian. I'm trying to remember. I didn't no, I think you're right. Uh, Argentinian soccer um, team, yeah. I think. I th- I'm yeah. pretty sure. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Great video, though. I'm wondering if uh, it looks like the landing gear is down. So um, else Palato uh, would say, hey, there's some more evidence. <laughs> Good ditching. That, yeah, well, of course, that's not really. Well, it's a ditching, but not in water. Yeah, never mind. Forget it. Well, um, I don't know. It, uh, it, 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 what do you classify snow as if it's not made yeah. of water? Uh, good point. So here's a little uh, image of the uh, the mountain system. And I guess that, that where they put that down was like one of the highest peaks uh, mm. in, the, in the Alps. Uh, beautiful place. I would imagine it was probably a little uh, chilly before they were rescued. Uh, no, but, no, it was in Italy, not chilly. <laughs> <laughs> good point. Thank you. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Oh, let's see. Is there anything else in the beautiful article? spot? Actually, isn't it? I mean, the weather then looks gorgeous. But uh, yeah, it's a Piper PA twenty eight uh, Archer two. Uh, the owner operator of the Aero Club of Belluno, and uh, the registration on it: India Papa India Delta Romeo. And uh, there were three occupants. No fatalities. I think the. Only injury was uh, some minor facial um, trauma to one of the passengers, and the other two were just fine. Was that when his wife gave him a slapping? Probably yeah. so. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think uh, one of the articles I was reading and had translated by Google uh, talked about, I think there were three young people in their 20s. Um, well, I guess I could still be married and still be slapped, uh, but it didn't go into that much detail. Uh, yeah, yeah, so thank you very much. Tourist plane, it says. Tourist print, blank. yeah, it's a little, pro- yeah, I guess not. GA is not as common uh, over there okay. in that part a of the 22 world. Okay, a twenty-two-year-old Sylvia Dibon, mm-hmm. her brother Mattia, and girlfriend Georgia. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I just had to scroll down a little bit further. Engine failure, perhaps due to engine failure. Yeah, flying we'll from Trento. Give them Trent- the benefit of the doubt. Trento to Balluno. Balluno. I don't know. Perhaps they should have taken a balloon. It might have been safer. Yeah, probably. <laughs> right. Hey, they might have cleared it. in the chat, Mohammed. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look at that. Uh, Mohammed uh, is in our chat. Oh, hi there, Mohammed. Welcome, sir. Uh, in uh, Iraq. Um, thank you for joining us. Dropping in, yeah. Yeah. The night there, I yeah, think. it must be very late over there. Uh, but... Um, we hope um, you're doing well. Anyway, uh, let's not get distracted here. Let me get back so to time to wrap it up. Here. Yes, time to wrap it up. And uh, we. Oh, I've just got something to uh, oh, okay. add. Yes, yes. Um, I, previously on show, we were talking about uh, the new proposed supersonic uh, 
airliner mm-hmm. um, yeah. boom, boom aerospace yeah. um, overture yeah. boom boom shake the room um, and uh, I was questioning because the engines apparently uh, were going to be dry power only they weren't uh, reheated they weren't going to have afterburner and I was going oh uh, I wonder how they're going to cope with getting over Mach 1 and uh, I'm sure they'll be alright doing a uh, super cruise uh, once they are supersonic but I was curious about that uh and i was wondering if an aircraft uh, had been built that could go uh well into or could get over the mac boundary uh in dry power only and grant has uh, provided me, me from australia you know our friend Aaron grant Aaron? who um is an erstwhile balloonist but knows a lot about in all its aspects irony huh? and has links to uh, a lot of uh, military aviation in Australia uh, and military companies. And uh, I think some of his work is probably a little bit secret squirrel. Mm. Anyway, um, he's saying, yeah, the F-22 can um, indeed accelerate in dry power only to get um, beyond Mach 1 and then do a super cruise in the uh, uh, mid to high... uh, Mac 1 to Mac 2 range. Uh, and in fact, he showed me a graph of an overlay of uh, the dry power of the F-22 Raptor against an F-15 in afterburner. And the F-22's power available almost entirely overcomes that of the F-15 in reheat, apart wow. from a little bit um, at very, very high level. Uh, where the F-15 does get a slight advantage, but that airplane is quite remarkable in dry power. It's very has a very very powerful engine that uh, doesn't really need reheat in a lot of aspects of its operations. Uh, so I'm I'm learning all the time, and uh, I went, wow, that's very impressive. So uh, I, I've I've stowed that one away now. Uh, obviously, the engine prof- manufacturers have. Uh, overcome the thrust requirements now to uh, that in in my um, regime of flight or you know in my time of flight uh, we would have needed reheat to do that that now they can do it in dry power only so amazing uh, the um, the magnificence of airplane design marches on I'm continually amazed you know regarding the uh, uh, the F-15 and the F-22 our our good friend you know the good looking Captain Jeff Colonel Jeff. Uh, flew the F-15, many different models of it. And uh, I asked him at one point uh, what he thought of that F-22. And he said, you know, they they had some, um, what do you call it, maneuvers, uh, one-on-ones. What do you call that uh, now that I, he's taking Sorry. a swig of his beer? Sword 1v1 user. combat? Yeah, 1v1 combat, whatever. He said that, uh, yeah, he said that th- those things would shoot us down before we could even know they were there. He said, it's not, it, ju- it just wasn't yeah. fair. He said that airplane is so amazing. <laughs> it just wasn't fair. So. Yeah, it, it it is a fantastic. The Raptor is a fantastic airplane, no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Oh, Neil, if only I was Neil's fifty years younger. Oh, Neil has a question. How easy is it to take a military engine and use it on a civilian airliner? Well, you have to get past security, all the um, uh, military police. <laughs> you need that's a big the hard, bottle of peanut butter. That's the hard part. Yeah, uh, most. Uh, all the big, most big military aircraft have basically got civilian airliner engines on them. Fighters uh, don't have room for a big fan, uh, and they want more pure uh, jet thrust rather than uh, fuel economy. 
So they stick more to a, um, you know, a, a, the core of a civilian airline, a jet engine is expanded, and that's what a military jet engine usually is. It doesn't include that huge fan on the front. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, they, they, they're just two different designs for two different jobs. Uh, fuel consumption is a priority if you're an airline pilot. And, um, you know, thrust to weight, um, not so important. In uh, a jet aircraft, a fighter aircraft, you're really looking for fantastic thrust to weight performance. Uh, and you're not really too worried uh, about fuel economy when, when you're in a combat situation. So, yeah. All right. There you go. Thank you for the question. And now let's go ahead and wrap this Thing up and we're going to point you to the, the website airlinepilotguy.com oh, lots great of great stuff there. and it's um important right now to point them to this oh it's very important now to, to <laughs> now we don't need their feedback liz we'll just talk more news and make it a shorter show <laughs> uh feedback at airlinepilotguy.com if you're so inclined and if you want to include some audio feedback like many of you do or video even. Uh, or video even yeah it's been a while since mm -hmm. we've had somebody send us some video feedback uh you can attach it to the um feedback at airlinepilotguy.com or an alternative means of uh getting us the video file because they tend to be a little bit l bigger than the uh, audio files but yeah we transfer works well anyway um so um there you go and we also are on social media or what I like to call the social meds. And now, Captain Nick, if you'll do the honors. Yeah, um, Steph, uh, Liz and I are um, often poking around the social meds. So if you're a, a facey, booky uh, person, or as I believe it is now called Meta, uh, look around for Airline Pilot Guy. That's all one word. And uh, if you're a Twitterer, uh, and that's owned by Elon now, isn't it? E Elon mm -hmm. owns. Yep. But is he still the CEO, or did he volunteer to get stepped down? I think down? so. Yeah. At uh, he's trying to find somebody anyway. to take it over. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is our handle on uh, Twitter and Instagram very similar? APG crew on the Instas. Mm-hmm. And very good. And we're also on Slack, and we have Hillel to tell us all about that. If he's if he's here, so let me uh, see if I can... Uh, Is he taking the week off? No, no, he's here. Wait, hang on. Hello? Hello, can you do talk about Slack? Okay, but I'm dripping wet. That's okay. Does he like your new apartment? Yeah, we, uh, do you like the new apartment? No, he's kind of speechless about that. Uh, but I do know that he uh, he's using a lot of uh, water and electricity here, so we, I need to talk to him about that. Anyway, come over here and sit down and tell us about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thank you very much, Hillel, for that. And uh, I use your razor, Jeff? Yes, I do mind. 
Anyway, uh, we all. He's not going to shave his legs again, is he? Uh, I'm not going to ask. (laughs) It's it's his deal. Do whatever he enjoys. uh, I'm good Hmm. with it. All right. And uh, with that, we're going to uh, do the final wrap up by telling you thank you for uh, staying with us and providing feedback for us and uh, contributing to the show financially and all of that. And also a big thank you to you, Liz, for all the hard work that you do every week and um, encouraging us and inspiring us. Yeah, thank you, Liz. Everything else. So you're awesome. We appreciate that. Thank you, Jimmy, for a nice comment in the Oh, Jimmy Sanchez says, while sitting here on reserve, I have enjoyed watching the show. What a memorable year this has been. You've made it much more so. Happy New Year, APG team. Well, thank you, Jimmy. Very nice of you to say so. We do appreciate it. And Oh, we are muted, Liz. I can't hear you for some reason. I don't know. Sorry, my phone was ringing, so I Ah, turned the thing down. Yeah. Yeah. Now now we hear you. So thank you, Liz, for everything. You're welcome. Thanks, you guys. Love the show. All right. We we love it. Actually, you can tell. We love doing the show. And we love the fact that there are people out there that are willing to listen to it and uh, and put up with us. So uh, thank you so much. And with that, we're going to wish you clear skies, unlimited visibility, tailwinds, and a happy new year. Take care and God bless. All the best, everybody. Happy new year. Feliz Navidad. Good day. Just fine. Airline.